to Wendell's World in Sports. Be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports today on the podcast. I'm going to say 90% of the thoughts and opinions I'm going to give is on the two best episodes that I've seen so far of The Last Dance, the documentary of the Chicago Bulls. Sometimes I dream that he is me. That's how I dream of how I used to be. Doom, doom, doom. The dream I move. Hey, the dream I groove like Mike. If I could be like Wendell. So, yeah, I'm going to get into that. I guess you could say the two best jingles that uh, really stand out for me is that one, the Gatorade commercial. And also the one with Hulk Hogan. I am a real American. Fight for what's right of every man. I am a real American. Fight for what's right. Fight for what's right. <laughs> gotta get soulful on that one. Fight for what's right. Oh, no, we gotta fight, y'all. No, so uh, those are the two jingles, I guess, from my childhood and from my early 20s, I guess, when Jordan came out with that stuff that I that still sticks to me, along with Pomp and Circumstance by the Macho Man. But for the most part, I'm going to be talking about the um, documentary. Parts five and six of the last run, the last dance of the Chicago Bulls. Um, interesting stuff, man, because it finally dealt into Michael Jordan, the activist, and how the criticism started to come about after he won the uh, championship, the second championship with the Portland Trailblazers, and he was on top of his game, and he was on top of the world, and he was a global icon, and he was a man, and of course, in this society, in this world that we live in, Especially if you're a black man, whenever you reach a certain height, a certain privilege, a certain pedestal, that the folks want to try to uh, knock you down. And when I say, especially when you're a black man, see, you're already going there, aren't you? Yeah, you're already thinking, oh, he goes with the white man, telling him about putting them down, putting them down. Nah, man, when you're reaching the status in our community of someone like a Jordan or someone like that, man, black folks are just as quickly, maybe not in the same numbers, and maybe they might not have the same powers and the same avenues and the same networks and the same type of money to help tear down that legacy. But, man, black folks, black folks in the community, man, they'll be quick to uh, put down someone in terms of uh, a black man who maybe didn't grow up the stereotypical way the black man should, what might separate someone from uh, Michael Jordan from, say, someone like a Floyd Mayweather or something like that in terms of the criticism on one end c compared to the lack of criticism on another end when someone does wrong, if Michael Jordan did something wrong, which he didn't even do, really. He didn't do anything wrong, but calling out for his political activism or his lack of political activism, the way it damaged him in terms of his image, the black community, would, would be a lot different, say, for instance, when we have this piece of garbage, Floyd Mayweather Jr., who's talking about, hey, what a great guy, the idiot that's in the White House is, White House is right now. I mean, just because, you know, he grew up a certain different way, looks a certain different way, talks a certain different way, 
in a different type of sport, you know, Floyd gets kind of a pass for his ignorance. Floyd gets kind of a pass for his stupidity. Floyd gets sort of a pass for all of the miscreeds and misgivings that he's done from those in the from those in the community. Not all, but for those in the community, Floyd is like, hey, Floyd's still Floyd, he's the man, this, that, and the other. When Jordan's lack of zeal and effort in his, you know, efforts to do something in terms of the North Carolina Senate race between Jesse Helms and Harvey Gantt. Well, you know, black folks, again, held that against them. Don't blame them, but we're not blind in terms of our loyalty uh, when it comes to that. Just take a look at R. Kelly. Sometime during the summer when the slow when the sports start to slow down and we really have nothing to talk about, this stuff about R. Kelly, man, does it reveal something not just about males, but also the black community in terms of who we admire, who we put on the pedestal, and who are we willing to defend despite those guys being absolute scumbags. But I'll get into that a little bit later. I really want to concentrate on the last dance, the two best document uh, episodes so far, the documentary about the Chicago Bulls, the start of the episode five. Good, man. Started with Jordan in his last All-Star game at MSG in 1998. It was interesting, man. If you go back and take a look at that, and take a look at some of the All-Stars on the Eastern Conference, and you're speaking about Timmy Hardaway, who was then with the Miami Heat, and Jason Williams, remember that guy? Jason Williams uh, with the New Jersey Nets, a rebounding fiend. Grant Hill, who was supposed to be the next Michael Jordan. Uh, Steve Smith, Atlanta Hawk guy. Sean Kemp! I mean, we all know Sean Kemp as the slender, dunking machine, athletic, uber-athletic guy from the Seattle Supersonics. Well, he was traded to the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers, and this was probably his last season because after the lockout of 1998-99, and Sean Kemp didn't do anything except eat, 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 and came back way over overweight, him and Ben Baker were never the same basketball players again. But this is the one or two good seasons that the Cleveland Cavaliers got out of Sean Kemp when he made that all-star game for the Eastern Conference. Penny Hardaway, of course, was going strong. Glenn Rice. The shooter from the University of Michigan went on to win a championship with the Los Angeles Lakers a little bit down the road. He was on the Eastern Conference. I think he was with the um, I think he was with the Miami Heat at that time, right? Or Charlotte Hornets, something like that. But he was on the Eastern Conference squad. Rick Smith. How about that? Rick Smith, big Rick Smith was on the Eastern Conference squad. And how about this? From the Boston Celtics. No, not Paul Pierce. Eastern All Conference All Star for 1998 at MSG, Antoine Walker. <laughs> How about that guy, man? Antoine Walker. I completely forgot that um, that he was on that All Star team. Interesting. Larry Bird was the head coach at that time. So, you know, it was interesting because at the beginning of the beginning of the episode five for the Last Dance, they were talking about hey, you know, special dedication or you know, in remembrance of. Kobe Bryant, because this was all being filmed while Kobe and his beautiful daughter Gigi was still living. So, you know, you had to, you know, pay a little bit of respect and special dedications going out to uh, Kobe Bryant and his daughter. But it was just, took me a little bit of a nostalgic look, you know, going down memory lane, just to take a look at the young Kobe Bryant going against Jordan in the Eastern Conference All-Star Game. You know, because, again, we remember Kobe Bryant. If you're of my age and maybe a little bit younger, to have the opportunity to see Jordan, I mean, mentally, physically, at the age that you were watching Jordan and then you were watching Kobe Bryant, so you kind of got more of the nuances because as a human being, you're a little bit more mature. Well, you're a lot more mature you're, when you're watching him as an adult. 
But, you know, you watch Jordan throughout his, his career, then Kobe Bryant comes in, and then again, you saw, as I mentioned before in other podcasts, you saw a Kobe Bryant who came in at the age of 17, 18 years old, straight out of high school, obviously Michael Jordan being his idol in terms of playing basketball, and you just saw the, 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 the ways and the moves and the way that he just um, moved like uh, uh, Jordan. You could see the influence that MJ had on this game, the machinations, everything in terms of, you know, Kobe doing the thing. And it took Kobe, before Kobe actually became Kobe Bryant and not Kobe Bryant trying to imitate Michael Jordan or trying to be Michael Jordan, it took Kobe, what, about six, seven years, something like that? I mean, even when he was winning championships, you would see Kobe react and do some things as far as celebrations are concerned or or, or reactions or anything. And it's like, this guy's just doing Jordan. This guy's just a Jordan imitator. I mean, maybe not so far with his moves. Anybody who wants to imitate Jordan, the basketball player, in terms of his turnaround jumper or in terms of, you know, his shot or something like that. I mean, that's something to be admired. But when you're talking about, you know, a guy who's going to stick out his tongue like Jordan or he's going to throw his hands in the air like Jordan when something happens or celebrate the way Michael Jordan would, it starts going, eh, not healthy, not healthy when you're trying to be someone else and not yourself. But Kobe was at a learning stage. Kobe is, again, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. We're not fully developed as human beings and as people yet. We're not comfortable yet in our own skin in terms of being placed in the environment that Kobe Bryant was being placed in, especially when you talk about Kobe Bryant, for the most part, being a lone wolf with him being so young and really not having anybody to associate with on the same level that uh, Kobe was at during that time. So it was just really, really interesting as a kid to see Kobe go up there. There was some mic'd up, up stuff about, you know, Jordan's going to kind of teach this young buck a little lesson here. And the and the, the, the name was out there. All right? the, 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 that was out already out there in terms of, yeah, we know who Kobe Bryant was. Even though it was the second season, if you remember the first season that Kobe was playing for the Lakers, that he didn't even start. He came off the bench. Uh, Eddie Jones from Temple University was starting at that time for L.A. So I think it's not until his second or third season that Kobe became a, a regular starter, and that's when the legend of Kobe Bryant really happened. So at this All-Star game, I don't know if Bryant was in the second or third year or something like that, but I remember the telecast at that time between uh, Bill Walton and Isaiah Thomas and Mark and Marv Albert at the time, and you, you could just tell, because, okay, cause I think it was in the second year because they kept talking about, they kept referring to how young Kobe Bryant was, but you could tell that that Kobe was being pushed in terms of we want to get this guy in front of the folks. We want to let folks know who are watching this game that Kobe Bryant is the heir apparent to Michael Jordan because it was just Kobe Bryant this, Kobe Bryant that, Kobe Bryant, Kobe Bryant, Kobe Bryant. In fact, I remember watching the game in one take and one remembrance that I have of the game is when Bill Walton was going on and on and on about Kobe Bryant, and then he made a reference to um, UCLA. Because, you know, Bill Walton, when you talk about UCLA, his alma mater, and anybody that played there, he would always be talking about, oh, yeah, UCLA, uh, you know, under the great John Wharton, UCLA, UCLA, you know, kind of repping the player where he went to school, right? You know, Bill Walton being a proud alumnus. And Isaiah Thomas was like, hey, Bill, do you think everybody should have gone, uh, gone to UCLA? And Bill Walton's response was, yeah, you should have gone to UCLA, Isaiah. You would have been a great player. <laughs> I was like, okay. All right. Bill Walton 
being Bill Walton in his prime in terms of when he was calling games for NBC. But yeah, it was purely, it was clearly evident that the league, that the marketeers, that the that the uh, TV execs and everything, they were, they had their eyes gazed very firmly, squarely on Kobe Bryant to be the next guy. And of course, Jordan, even though Jordan was talking about this is my last year, he still wasn't ready to give up that mantle. He still wasn't ready to concede the spotlight just yet. So he made it a point to go out there and kind of teach Kobe Bryant a lesson. I mean, I guess you could almost say to, to the way that Isaiah Thomas and Magic Johnson and George Gervin and those kind of did with him in, in MJ's second or first year when he was elected to the All-Star Game and he came to Indianapolis all out, decked out in his Jordan gear and these old heads or these guys, these established guys in the league are taking a look at this and saying, what's, what's up with this guy up here kind of trying to separate himself like this? You got to remember, man, when Jordan came into the league, I mean, there really wasn't, you had your Dr. J's and you had your signature shoes and you had, you know, a couple of things, but, you know, the way Jordan came in just decked out, like, you know, he was like a walking billboard for Nike with the shoes and the gear and the, you know, and the, the sweats and all this kind of stuff. You know, guys established superstars in the league like, like Isaiah and Magic and those guys didn't appreciate it. So that's one of the reasons why they froze him out. Jordan went two for nine and George Gervin lit him up just to kind of let him know that, you know what, young fella, hold on before you start uh, trying to move in on moving on our territory. Just because you can jump, stick your tongue out and you have Sports Illustrated uh, putting you on the cover doesn't mean that you're ready yet to win championships. Magic Johnson was saying, this is still my league. Larry Bird was saying, this is still my league. Isaiah Thomas was saying, this is still our league. So just hold on, young fella. Fast forward, and of course, Jordan took great exceptions to that. Allegedly, maybe, I don't know. Jordan grudges, hey. But now, fast forward that, the one thing that Jordan was kind of salty about what Isaiah and Magic and those guys did to him back in the day, he's returning the favor to a young Kobe Bryant because if you remember what he was talking about, he, this kid's going to try to go one-on-one. He's not going to play any defense. I'm going to make his ass play some defense tonight, this, that, and the other. So it was interesting to take a look at that in terms of, you know, Jordan passing i guess you can almost say it's a it's a um it's a uh, what is it, passing the torch type of moment it's like part of the education if you're going to be the man if you're going to be the face of the league if you're going to be the guy that's going to be the number one guy for our league you are going to have to go ahead and go through this indoctrination period and this is what you're going to have to go through so what jordan went through in terms of what they did to him in the 84 nba all-star game is what Jordan did to Kobe in the 1998 All-Star Game, part of the indoctrination, if you want to be part of the club, the exclusive club, that many of you folks, many of the TV guys, many of the league executives, many of the marketeers out there are trying to trying to move you to, speaking of Kobe Bryant. So, yeah, so I was up there watching this, and I saw a young, slim, athletic, full of hair, goateed Kobe Bryant and then you take a look when they were when Kobe was talking about it. You took a look at Kobe as an old head, you know. And it was just interesting to see that uh, to see that dichotomy between the young-looking guy, 19 years old, and then a guy 22 years later talking about a little bit more heavier, but a little bit more wiser, a little bit more mature, a little bit a lot, not a little bit. I'm excuse me, I'm sorry. A lot more mature, a lot more wise, a lot more with wisdom, a lot more comfortable in his own skin. Kobe Bryant talking about that. Highlights of him catching an alley-oop pass from Kevin Garnett. 
for the dunk. Interesting that those two players are going to be going into the Hall of Fame. Of course, one Kobe being uh, posthumous, but uh, it was it was really interesting about the relationship and what Brian said in the documentary about his early relationship with MJ. It was a rough couple years for me coming to the league because at the time the league was so much older. It's not as young as it is today, so nobody was really thinking much of me. I was a, you know, a kid that shot a bunch of air balls, you know what I mean? And at that point, Michael provided a lot of guidance for me. Like, I had a question about shooting this turnaround shot, so I asked him about it. And you know, he gave me a great detailed answer. But on top of that, he said, if you ever need anything, give me a call. Yeah, he talked about how difficult it was for him to get into the league, to establish himself because the stars were much older. It was interesting because even with the one and done, the league is still a lot younger than it was when, when Kobe came into the league at the time when you could go straight from high school to the NBA. And the interesting comment that he made about he was known mainly for shooting air balls that was referenced to the elimination game against the Utah Jazz where Kobe shot two air balls on consecutive Laker offensive possessions late in the game. I remember Antoine Carr coming up to him at the end of the game saying, don't worry about a fella, you're going to be fine. Del Harris having the cojones to go inherit, go ahead and put that young buck in the uh, game at that time. Shaquille O'Neal being very supportive of him after the, uh, after the game was over. So it was interesting. And it was also interesting that MJ provided him with a lot of guidance and became like a big brother. I always... In hearing that, the first thing I thought about was, wow, I wonder what Shaquille O'Neal thinks or thought. Because at the time, it was a situation where, you know what, Shaquille O'Neal wanted to have that role with Kobe Bryant. Shaquille O'Neal wanted to be the guy to kind of say, hey, you know, young fella, let me kind of lead you on and let me kind of do this to you. And Kobe was like, yeah, fuck you, man. I don't need no damn big brother. You need to get your big fat ass into shape and help us win championships. I'm doing everything that I can. You need to stop making rap albums. You need to stop trying to star in hoop dreams. You need to stop doing all this Shazam bullshit and getting to the gym, lose some weight and learn how to shoot a jump hook or something like that or turn around or a dream shake or something and get your fat ass back into shape and win us some championships. That was Kobe's attitude. Even as a young player at 19, 20, 21 years old. You know what I'm saying? And Sha Shaquille, you know, just like Jordan, when you're the man, you know, Shaquille could, you know, be a little bit vicious in terms of his playing around, in terms of his cutting up, in terms of a joning on somebody. So, you know, it was a situation where Kobe kind of bristled at that. And Shaq was like, hey, man, what the fuck's the matter with this guy? You know, this guy thinks he's all this, that, and the other in a bag of chips. You know, he can't take a little ribbing. He can't take a little joking. He can't take me, you know, kind of being the man on this team. What's up with him? I mean, Kobe was more focused, as he will tell you, on being the best basketball player who ever lived. I'm not trying to be somebody's little brother. So it was interesting in that regard because he was talking about how MJ, the guy that he idled growing up, took him under his wing and Kobe accepted that. But yet the guy on his team who was the franchise, Shaquille O'Neal, when he tried, to go ahead and be that big brother, Kobe Bristles. So that was that was interesting in terms of the first thing I thought about where Kobe was talking about, uh, you know, what MJ was really great. You know, he had went up to him and talked about how do you hit that turnaround jumper and how fun it was for him to play against MJ at the Madison Square Garden and realizing how big and strong and fast that he was. So interesting commentary, as always, by the late legendary KB. But he also talked about, speaking of Bryant, he also talked about, you know, when people would come up to him and say, hey, man, Kobe, you one-on-one -on -one against MJ, you would win, you would win, and all this kind of stuff. Interesting to what Kobe had to say about that. 
you know, I truly hate having discussions about who would win one-on-one and you're a fan saying, hey, Kobe, you beat Michael one-on-one. I feel like, yo, what you get from me is from him. I don't get five championships here without him because he guided me so much and gave me so much great advice. Yeah, I don't blame him. Absolutely. I mean, that's what it was. When people talk about, you know, who's the, if you're going to determine who's a better basketball player by talking about who would win a game in a one in one on one, that's that's beyond ignorant. That's beyond ridiculous. If you want to talk about who's the greater one on one basketball player, MJ or Kobe, that's what you can do. You can have that discussion. But if you're going to try to put it in the context of who's a better basketball player, and you're talking about well, who would win in a game of one on one, what the fuck does that mean? What does it have to do with anything? So what? Whether it would be MJ, whether it would be Kobe, what does it have to do in terms of him being a better basketball player? There's so much more into playing basketball than just who can do one-on-one or who can be one-on-one to determine. If you're going to determine or try to determine who's a better basketball player, who cares? Who's a better teammate? Who's a better rebounder? Who's a better defender? Who's a better clutch player? Who's a better passer? Who's a better, you know, uh, who's a better guy who can work with others? I mean, all of those other things come into play. When you're talking about that, and even when you're talking about different eras, it's I know it's fun, I know it's barbershop talk, and I know it's all that other nonsense, but yeah, Kobe, again, was talking about, whoa, man, slow down on that, because MJ paved the way for Kobe to be Kobe, just like Magic and Bird paved the way for Jordan to be Jordan, just like Dr. J paved the way for Jordan to be Jordan, just like Elgin Baylor paved the way for Connie Hawkins and Dr. J to be those type of players. So it, it all goes back farther and farther and farther. So again, different ears, different styles, different rules, different everything in terms of trying to determine who's a better basketball player, who's this, that, and the other. It's, for me, if you start going the one-on-one route, whether it was Jordan, whether it was Kobe Bryant, really doesn't matter. It doesn't really determine anything. I mean, so what if you're a better, who, who has better fundamentals? You know, who's better in the clutch situations? Who's going to make the right pass? Who's going to make the right defensive play? Who's going to be able to be better coached? Who worked harder on their game? I mean, who sacrificed more? It's all of these other things go into the minutia, go into the stew, go into the recipe of who's the greatest basketball player of all time or who's a better basketball player of all time. In my estimation, in my guesstimation, in my opinion, MJ, Kobe, sitting at the table. Sitting at the table. Now, who's going to order first? Who's going to leave the bigger tip? Who's going to do this, that, and the other? Once you hit that VIP section of greatest basketball players of all time, when you're speaking about Jordan and Kobe and Wilt and Bill and LeBron and Tim Duncan and all these other guys, Oscar Robertson, Jerry West, Elgin Baylor, Kevin McHale, Larry Bird, when you have this big table, the biggest table, the nicest table, the VIP section of the club, in terms of who's the greatest of all time. When you have that established group in there, now who's going to be the alpha dog in that room? Who's going to be the guy that's going to get the most chicks? Who's going to be the one that's going to, uh, you know, swing the biggest dick in terms of, you know, being the guy? Well, that's up for them to decide, not us mere mortals who have no idea what it's like to be that great at the game of basketball. So in that argument, in that situation, Kobe and MJ and Wilt and Bill and Shaq and, George Mikan and Bob Pettit and all these other guys who paved the way and are legendary figures, they can have that argument in terms of who's the greatest basketball player of all time. Almost like Field of Dreams, right? I mean, in that big basketball, 
that big basketball gym in the sky where Kobe just got in there and he's being joined by Wilt Chamberlain and Maurice Stokes and uh, other basketball players where they're right now going one-on-one or right now where they're going five-on-five. I'm quite sure Kobe is talking mad trash to Wilt right now and Wilt's still probably talking about how, yeah, 81 points was good, but you never got 100. Yeah, scoring 35 points a game was good, but you never averaged 50. Yeah, you know what, getting, you know, five, six, seven rebounds a game, but you never got 27. I averaged 30 for my career in the time where you could beat people up and put your hands on them and all that kind of stuff. I can only imagine up in heaven right now the trash talking that's going on between Kobe and Wilt right now. It must be it must be absolutely ridiculous. Jack Twyman is up there probably calling the game saying, what the fuck? So, yeah. So, just basically to get back what Kobe was talking about, I thought it was the correct answer. I thought it was the mature answer in terms of him discussing, you know, don't, I mean, one-on-one, Jordan, don't, don't, don't bring that discussion up when you're trying to discuss who got the, you know, who, who's the better basketball player of all time. Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us talking about what was happening in episodes five and six of the last dance between Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls and everybody else in the world. So again, speaking about what happened in the 1998 All-Star game, Jordan was the MVP. Of course, Bob Costas made the salient point of, I mean, you know, when you're the best player in the game, why in the world are you going to be, uh, why in the world are you going to be retiring again, especially with a guy like Michael Jordan who's so doggone competitive, who at the time, from the outside looking in, seemed to be enjoying being Michael Jordan so doggone much in this position and this space and time in life. Why was he willing to walk away from that? Interesting. Interesting. But, uh, yeah, it was it talked about how MJ signed with Nike. At the time, the players wore Converse. If you're speaking about Magic and Bird and Isaiah, Julius Irving, Dr. J, Bernard King, my idol growing up, BK with the New York Knicks, Kevin McHale, the greatest power forward, one of the greatest power forwards who's ever lived, top three, top four, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I'm a superstar like my man Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. All of those guys, for the most part, wore Converse because... You know, in that situation, Converse dominated the league. I mean, if you're speaking about the Chuck Taylors, the ones that all the players in the 50s and the 60s wore, and up most up to the 70s, when you're speaking about the Chuck Taylors, Chuck Taylors were Converse. So Converse really had a monopoly on the shoes that the NBA basketball players wore. So when Jordan came out of North Carolina, you know, Converse, snobby, snobby. Full of hubris. Ah, yeah, you know, we got Julius, we got Magic, we got Bird, we've got all the stars. You know what? Go ahead and prove yourself first, MJ, and then we may talk about putting you in the same stable as the guys that we've got now. And Jordan was like, okay, cool, I can understand that. So, again, Converse had dominated the NBA since the, really since the beginning of the league. I mean, Bill Russell, Wilt Oster, Jerry Elgin, Bob Pettit, Jerry Lucas, all of those guys wore Chuck Taylors. And the NBA, before before MJ came on the scene and started, you know, talking about, hey, you know, let's go to Reebok and let's go to what Reebok was around. It was Adidas and Nike and all these other things. Really, there really wasn't that avenue in terms of players having their apparel or having, or, or should I say, having the ability to build their brand. Jordan was the first guy to really, quote-unquote, build his brand, to show the players coming in after him 
that this is how you build your brand. First of all, you become an absolutely fantastic and tremendous basketball player. But also, he just laid down the foundation and, and wrote the how-to book on how to do what LeBron James and Chris Paul and James Hart and Kobe and all those guys were doing after him. But, you know, NBA players who had shoe deals before MJ, not too many. If you remember the 1973 Puma Clads, those were custom basketball shoes for Clyde Frazier back in 1973. Dr. J had the pro leathers back in 1976. Moses Malone wore the Air Force team proudly in 1982. So at the beginning, it was interesting, huh, man? You're talking about some bullshit or you're talking about, man, who needs to get fired from Adidas? Remember in the documentary Jordan was talking about he wanted to go to Adidas? He liked the Los Angeles Lakers, who at the time wore Adidas, and Marcus Johnson, the forward from the um, University of UCLA or University of California, Los Angeles. Um, he, he played for the Milwaukee Bucks, and 6'7 guy had the same type of tools Jordan did, except Jordan's abilities were like you know a lot higher. But, yeah, Jordan was talking about, hey, man, those are the, uh, those are the type of shoes that I want to wear. But, again... Adidas dysfunctional at the time was like, nah, that's okay, that's all right. Do you remember at that time the most famous people to actually wear Adidas? Do you remember the people who wore my Adidas? Yeah, man, you'd be cold illin' on that one. My, my main group was Houdini, five minutes to funk, this ain't no junk. Go pull your panties off the free stump. Ladies were pretty from city to city, but now I'm getting down to the ditty gritty from the bottom to the top, top to the bottom. I'm gonna rock them while I still got them. This rapping power has style and power, and this is our disco hour. I don't know what all of you have been heard, but it's up to me to spread the word. Houdini! That was my group back in the day, not run DMC. But just to get back to the point, yeah, man, it was, um, yeah, and I know I messed up on some of the lyrics. Give me a little flack. Give, give me a little. Give me a little something. It's been what forty years since that song first came out. Eighty six, ninety six, two thousand six, two thousand sixteen. Ooh, man, I'm old. So yeah, been a little time since I heard Five Minutes to Funk. So give me a little back off on the criticism. On wait a minute, some of them lyrics didn't kind of mesh out. But um, yeah, so Jordan had no interest signing with Nike until his mom said, "You're going up to Nike and you're going to listen." And Nike, I guess at the time, had nothing to lose. I mean, they were mainly um, track and field type operation who had tennis players. And they offered them $250,000. And Jordan was like, bingo, sold. So it was a situation like that. Again, and even when you take a look at the NBA during that time, the marquee guys were mainly the big centers. I mean, everything in the NBA that, at that time, as far as superstars and great players at that time, were all centered around the big man. You couldn't win a championship unless you had the big man. So, yeah, you had someone like a Dr. J who was flying and doing all those type of things. But what? He couldn't win a championship when he went up against the Lakers and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when you have D Chocolate Thunder, Daryl Dawkins, and Caldwell Jones guarding the guy. It's not until Dr. J got who in 1982 from Houston? Some guy named Moses Malone who almost went fo 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 in the NBA playoffs and got Doc his only championship. So, you know, you had Magic, a 6'9 guard. You had Bird, a 6'9 forward. They had Magic had Kareem center. Bird had Parrish center. So the prevailing thought at that time 
when Jordan was going into the league was that it was mainly a league that centered around the centers. So, yeah, it really wasn't looking to, as for instance, you know, build a whole campaign around this 6'5 guard from North Carolina who still had an iffy jump shot, couldn't go left, and had weak ball handling skills at the time. So, Jordan proved them wrong. <laughs> Jordan proved them all wrong. And it's interesting to see how both Jordan helped out Nike and Nike has helped out Jordan through the years. Both Phil Knight and Michael Jordan should be very happy that those guys got a working relationship like they did because they made them it made them both super duper unbelievably wealthy. The second the, the coming up party, I think, because I remember the whole Jordan phenomenon. Remember, man, I'm old. I just remember everything really took off from Jordan because yeah, there was the Olympics and wow, great, wow, golly, wow. Bet you my golly, wow, this guy's great. He's the one that the NBA has been waiting for forever. But really, he wasn't the Michael Jordan at the millennials and maybe some of these folks who are walk, watching the documentary now. He was still Mike Jordan more than Michael Jordan. You can just tell by the 1984 NBA draft where Akeem Olajuwon was drafted first, no big deal. Sam Bowie was drafted second. Now, in hindsight, everybody says, what a joke, what a clown, what a this, that, and the other. Well, you also have to remember, again, at that time in the NBA, the league was dominated by centers. Kareem was still in his prime and absolutely killing the Blazers night after night after night. The Blazers the year before had drafted Clyde Drexler and already had Jim Paxson on the team who made the All-Star squad uh, back in 1983. So at the time that the Trailblazers were drafting, they didn't need a shooting guard. And before people start sitting there talking about, oh yeah, well, fuck, it's Michael Jordan. Yeah, now we know it's Michael Jordan. But again, back then we didn't know Michael Jordan was going to turn into being Michael Jordan. Just like... The New England Patriots didn't have any idea that Tom Brady was going to become Tom Brady nor anybody else in the league back in 1998 or 99 when the Patriots were drafting them. Yeah, everybody talked about whoop-de-doo, great job, uh, Bill Belichick and this, that, and the other, drafting Tom Brady. Well, Bill Belichick was so freaking smart and knew that Tom Brady was going to turn into Tom Brady, he would have drafted him with the first-round pick and not wait until the sixth round. So, yeah, sometimes you, just, you don't know. Johnny Unitas wasn't drafted. He turned out to be a pretty good football player. So Jerry Rice went in the late, went in the mid-first round. He turned out to be a pretty good wide receiver. So, you know, I'm not going to, like, you know, jump on Portland. But that's another topic for another show. But basically, as I mentioned before, it was a situation where to give this guy, Michael Jordan, Nike, this kind of money was thought to be outrageous. But, again... Nike rolled the dice, came up a winner. And I I think the second, I think when Jordan really hit the, really hit the um, superstar spotlight or, oh shit, this guy is the fucking deal. Basically when he was unshackled from Dean Smith's rigid offensive scheme at North Carolina and he was allowed any pros to do a thing. The second time we saw him dunk, he did that David Thompson, Dr. J. Remember when Dr. J cradled it back against the Lakers, dunking on Michael Cooper at the uh, Spectrum in overtime? Uh, you're probably not. You're too young. But Jordan, when he had that rock the cradle dunk at MSG, and I think he put up 50 points or something like that in his second game, I think it was very early in his career. He went to Madison Square Garden, put on a show, um, did the rock the cradle dunk at the end of the, at the, end of the contest. It was uh, the coming out party. For Michael Jordan, that's where 
the legend of Michael Jordan started to take place. It wasn't at the Olympics. It wasn't, uh, you know, being drafted by the Bulls and this, that, and the other. They thought, yeah, with MJ, we're going to get a guy who's going to be really good, put some excitement back into a team and a franchise that the city really doesn't care about. And, you know, with a lot of good luck and a lot of hard work and a lot of great coaching that Jordan can become a guy who can be a perennial all-star, nobody, 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 nobody at the time, nobody, I don't think Jesus Christ himself, even thought that Michael Jordan was going to turn into what he believed in. Well, maybe Jesus Christ had an idea. But, I mean, he's like, he's the one that gave him the talent, right? So maybe he did have a clue. But other than other than the Almighty One, nobody, no earthly human being thought Michael Jordan was going to, I bet Michael Jordan probably didn't even think that he was going to turn into the type of basketball player that he was going to come become. But, yeah, it was the, it was the second time at Madison Square Garden. It was the game at Madison Square Garden, the second time we saw that dunk that um, David Thompson did and Dr. J did, that it was like, oh, shit. Now we've got ourselves a potential superstar. Does anybody remember, by the way, you're listening to this podcast, right? Answer me this question. Do you remember the first time that Michael Jordan did that dunk? Do you remember? I remember. I remember it vividly. Ten seconds left. Len Bias had the shot blocked by Sam Perkins. I guess that is a pretty fitting end to the ballgame. Jordan, look at that! Holy cow! Michael Jordan took a look at the clock, said two seconds left. I'm going to give him something to rave about. And that was a young Mike Patrick. Holy cow! Yeah, that was the first time MJ did that dunk against the University of Maryland. Adrian Branch, Lenny Bias, my favorite athlete right behind Muhammad Ali, Lenny Bias, you know what, I want to let, before I go to, uh, before I take a break, I'm going to say this, it's not going to happen in this podcast, I'm not going to talk about it in this podcast, but for those who might not know the legend of Maryland's own, my hero, Lenny Bias, look it up, look it up, because I'm going to do a podcast in about five or six weeks talking about a time when Michael Jordan wasn't the best basketball player on earth, wasn't the best basketball player even in college, wasn't the best basketball player even in his age group. That man was Lenny Bias. Damn right. And you might say that I'm biased, talking about my man Lenny Bias, who I still miss to this day. But uh, yeah, that was the dunk that the coming out party for Jordan in terms of, oh man, this guy as far as the college basketball player, because his junior year, he won the, his junior year, he won the college basketball player of the year. And then he went on and lost to Indiana because he was so scared to face Georgetown, who absolutely won the NBA, who won the uh, college basketball championship that year in 83, 84. Yeah. So Jordan knew that he didn't want to face Patrick Ewing. He didn't want to face David Wingate. He didn't want to face Michael Jackson. He didn't want to face Michael Graham. He didn't want to face, uh, Horace Broadnax, he didn't want to face uh, Fred Brown, he didn't want to face the coaching genius, which was John Thompson, Hall of Famer, John Thompson Jr. Jordan didn't want any of that, man. No, 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 no. Hey, 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 hey. Jordan didn't want any of that. So he was like, yeah, let me go ahead and lose to Steve Alford in Indiana. That way I won't have to be facing Patrick Ewing. I'll get, I'll get my, I'll get my ass whooping in terms of giving it to uh, Patrick Ewing when I hit the NBA. But as for right now, now I'm going to leave Georgetown and Patrick Ewing and John Thompson Jr. and Reggie Williams and those guys. I'm going to leave them alone. Damn right. But, 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 
that dunk against Maryland, that was the like, oh shit, I remember that as a kid after after being consoled after they lost to UNC. That, uh, man, you saw that dunk, you were like, yeah, Jordan's the shit. But that was the first time he brought out that signature dunk that paved the way for Michael Jordan to start becoming the legend, the greatest, the GOAT, Michael Jordan. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us talking about The Last Dance, the episode 5 and 6 of the Chicago Bulls. A little bit later on in the podcast, I'm going to talk about the passing of Miami Dolphins Hall of Fame coach Don Shula, who also coached the Baltimore Colts before moving on to coach 26 years with the Miami Dolphins, passing away at the age of 90, give you my thoughts and feelings about that. And also talk about Andy Dalton going to the Dallas Cowboys. Woohoo! I thought, man, I thought that he was going to be going. I thought he was going to be going to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Self shows what I know, right? So there you go. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. Wendell Wallace, your host. So glad that you could be with us. But moving back now to talk about the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan, that whole deal, the documentary. Talked about in the documentary in episode five about the 1991 92 season, I thought that that was MJ's best best ever. I think that's when Jordan really hit his apex as a player. And I thought that 67-win team that Michael Wilbon was talking about, who also I agreed with in terms of that was of the six championships that Chicago won during the 90s. I thought that 1991-92 championship team was the best. They won 67 games, the best record in the NBA by 10 games. Jordan won his seventh straight scoring title, his second straight MVP, his third overall. I think if you really take a look at it in terms of his physicality, his skill-wise, his mentality, everything, when you blend them in together, yeah, when Jordan came back, he was still awesome. And yeah, 92-93 uh, season, he was great. And if you take a look at some of his earlier years, he was absolutely fantastic. He just didn't have the team around him to win a championship, but I really thought if you blended everything together, the mental, the physical, the skills, I thought that 1991-92 season was the absolute best, the absolute peak of Michael Jordan. Average 30 points a game, six and a half rebounds during the playoffs, he upped it to 34 and a half points per game, 6.2 rebounds per game. I, I thought that was really, again, the best. If you remember when he came back from baseball, got himself back in the shape. He was 31, 32 years old. So because he didn't have no longer the athletic ability that he once had, once had, he had to develop a turnaround jumper. He had to develop more of a three-point shot. He had to develop more of an outside game because at his age and the mileage that he put on his body, he wasn't going to be able to ferociously attack the basket like he did back in his earlier days. So I thought, again, the young Jordan, 
had to work on his ball handling, had to work on his shooting, had to work on some other things, had to work on being a better teammate. The older Jordan didn't have the ability to get to the hoop with the ease and the grace and the ferocity and the ability that he had back before he stopped playing and went on to try to play baseball. But his skill level, his skill set, his mind, his mentals, his intelligence, his genius about the game of basketball, knowing experience was there to compensate more than compensate for the lack of athleticism that he had. But I'm just thinking in terms of everything put together, when everything was close enough to blend in beautifully, I think that Michael Jordan of 1991-92 was the best Michael Jordan that we've ever seen. Went into the NBA Finals against the Portland Trailblazers before they became the Trail, Blank, the Trail Gangsters, the Smoke Blazers and everything like that with that group of Darius Miles and J.R. Ryder and J Isaiah, don't call me J.R. Ryder and Rasheed Wallace and those guys. And But I remember that finals against Portland and they were talking about, you know, hey, Clyde Drexler and, you know, Jordan was taking, was, was the situation where, yeah, I took offense to the fact that, you know, they were trying to compare me to Clyde Drexler and I thought that was bunk and I thought, well, that was bogus. And, you know, Jordan didn't need a LeBradford Smith type of uh, mind game to try to get him motivated to try to eviscerate um Clyde Drexler. I mean, that was some true talk right there when you're speaking about. No one actually said that Clyde Drexler is better than Michael Jordan, but it was a situation where it was like, hey, this is a situation where Jordan is not just going to be able just to manhandle this guy. Drexler is going to be able to give him some, some competition, to which Jordan took that as a slight, being the competitor that Jordan was. So the situation where the the the, the simple the simple bias or the simple construction of the argument Drexler versus Jordan in 1992 for the finals was, well, at least Drexler is not going to let Jordan just go hog wild. At least when Jordan's going to dominate, he's going to have to actually make him work for it. Jordan took that narrative and turned it into, oh, well, they're saying that Drexler is just as good as Jordan. Really? Okay. So, <laughs> yikes. So, but yeah, he, um, he torched uh, Drexler pretty good. He did pretty well. Okay. You made your point. Really didn't have to make the point. We all understood. You're the best player on the planet. We get you. We understand. But I still remember when you take a look. Of course, I remember game one where he scored 35 points. Jordan, he scored 35 points in the first half. And he hits three, six threes. And he was shrugging the magic about, can't miss. I don't know what the fuck's going on. I'm throwing it up there and it's going in. Hey, thank you, Lord. But what I also remember from that series, and Portland had a good team. They had Terry Porter. They had Clyde Drexler. They had Danny Ainge. They had Kevin Duckworth. They had Jerome Kersey. They had Dragan Petrovic. They had a pretty good squad, that, that Trailblazers team. I remember about that series was game six at Chicago Stadium. At the end of the third quarter, I remember Portland led by 15. Then Chicago outscored them 33-14 to 14 in the fourth quarter. I think they went on some type of like a 13-3 run in the first three minutes and 20 seconds of the fourth quarter. They came back and won the game 97-93. I know this because at the time, I was still a huge Magic Johnson fan. I still wasn't on the Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player who ever lived bandwagon because my loyalty, my blind, ferocious loyalty to Magic Johnson mentally could not get me to that space. To where I would have to say, my man, my hero, one of the guys, one of the reasons why I love this game of basketball so much, one of the people who influenced me to play basketball and love it the way, the way that I do, I'm not ready just to throw him by the wayside so quickly 
when he won five NBA championships, when he was part of the best team who's ever lived, when he was part of the 1980s dynasty, which was the Los Angeles Lakers and played a really important part, a guy who was still my guy. I wasn't ready to give him up just yet. I wasn't going to abandon. I wasn't going to jump ship. I wasn't going to jump off the Magic Johnson ship, even though it was sinking faster than the Titanic when you're speaking about who was the greatest basketball player, who was building the better resume, who was going to be going down at the greatest between those two, MJ and Magic. I wasn't ready yet to admit. I was still in denial. So I was openly cheering for Portland to go ahead and beat the Chicago Bulls, just like I was cheering ferociously about the Utah Jazz twice to beat the Chicago Bulls. I was cheering, I was praying, I was begging, I was pleading that the Seattle Supersonics, that the Portland Trailblazers could go ahead and beat the Chicago Bulls, especially when you're talking about the Bulls going ahead and doing what they did to my Los Angeles Lakers and Magic Johnson, the first championship that Jordan won. So, yeah, man, I was like Portland, 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 Portland. Buck Williams, Maryland Grab was on that team. Portland, 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 Portland. So when they had that 15-point lead, I was dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas. But you know who saved that game? Because I'll tell you this right now. Phil Jackson had Michael Jordan on the bench. Now, you could say that at the start at the start of every fourth quarter, Phil Jackson had Michael Jordan on the bench to get him some rest so he can rev up, get himself revved up for the fourth quarter when they put him back in. But I think this was a situation where Phil was like, you know what, we're going to rest him and get ready for game seven. We're down by 15, so... Basically, I'm not really consciously thinking about putting Michael Jordan back in the game because I think that we're going to lose this game. What turned everything around, first was having Scottie Pippen, the only starter still in the game, to anchor that second unit that the Bulls had. But remember, I know you don't, Bob Hansen, Bob Flippin' Hansen, white boy from Iowa, came in in that fourth quarter and was getting buckets. But I remember he caught a ball is he dunked on somebody it was like a center or something like that I don't know if it was Duckworth I don't know if it was Cliff Robinson I don't know who it was but he dunked on him and I was like oh shit oh shit 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 because I saw that all of a sudden that 15 point lead by Portland 13 11 8 6 and I'm like no no and the Chicago Stadium started getting louder and louder and the started the thunder more and all this kind of stuff and I'm sitting up there going no 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 no! <laughs> no! No! So, but uh, it started, you know, going on like that. And before you knew it, Jordan checked in. And I was like, oh, shit. Oh, well. <laughs> At least Magic still had five. Jordan has two. Magic has five. Okay. Magic's still the better player because he still had more championships. But I was like, oh, well, shit. This game's going to be over now. Hey, man. Portland holds on. They don't choke. I mean, who knows about game seven? It wasn't like the deciding game. But, man. Portland has been, their, 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 um, their history, the Trailblazers' history, especially after winning that championship in 1976-77 with Jack Ramsey and, and uh, Bill Walton and Maurice Lucas and those guys, Steve Snapper Jones, it's like, man, they've been part of some, really, some big collapse. I mean, we all remember, if you're a Laker fan, especially of another generation, the collapse that they had in Game 7, where basically on talent, they had the best team, where they had Pippen and Steve Smith and Rasheed Wallace, and they lost that uh, seventh game after blowing that late fourth quarter lead. No, that, that fourth quarter lead, that big fourth quarter lead, they lost it and they choked against Kobe and Shaq when Kobe and Shaq were marching on to get their first championship in the first year that Phil Jackson came aboard on as, as the coach. But, yeah, there's been some, like, real choke jobs 
constructed by the Portland Trail Chokers uh, in terms of what happened in Game 6 in 92 against the Chicago Bulls and what happened, and I think it was, what was when, did, when did those guys win the championship? When did Shaq and Kobe and those guys win their first championship? Was it before or after the uh, 21st century? I don't know. It was somewhere around there, but when those guys were doing their thing, man, I just also remember sitting up there watching the Trailblazers choke, and it was like, yep, deja vu, deja vu all over again. But, yeah, man, I think going back to MJ, and you had that team where you had uh, B.J. Armstrong, who was very underrated, underrated as far as being uh, important for that team. You had Armstrong, you had... Scotty Pippen in his prime. You had Horace Grant at his best. And, of course, you had the best player on the planet at that time. You had the best coach at that time. I mean, you had Craig Hodges, I believe, on that on that squad. If it wasn't Craig Hodges, you had John Paxson, who provides some three-point shooting. You had Stacey King on that team. You had, a, you had some pretty good players on that team. The 67-win Chicago Bulls of 1992. Michael Jordan, 1991-92. Both at the peak of their powers during this run during this run at the dynasty that they were becoming. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what's going down on The Last Dance, the documentary of the Chicago Bulls. Man, I would love to, all right, I want to try to get into something else again later on in the program. I've got some football that I want to talk about, but as of right now, what's Kevin Jones and me is the uh, talking about the uh, MJ documentary, especially episodes five and six, two of the best ones so far that I've seen concerning this doc, but uh, 1992, speaking about the dream team, how much of, a, of course, the question that came out of it, the much debated topic that came out of it was, how much of a role did Jordan play in not having Isaiah Thomas on the team? Now, of course, Jordan gave his reason an explanation talking about, hey, man, I wasn't the one. Don't look at me when you're talking about Isaiah not being on the team. Don't look this way. I respect Isaiah Thomas's talent. If to me the best point guard of all time is Magic Johnson, and right behind him is Isaiah Thomas. No matter how much I hate him, you know, I respect his game. Now it was insinuated that I was asking about him, but I never threw his name in. The dream team, based on the environment and the camaraderie that happened on that team, it was the best harmony. Would Isaiah made a different feeling? On that team, yes. You want to attribute it to me, go ahead, be my guest. But it wasn't me. You know what? I believe everything he says. I absolutely believe it. As much as he hated Isaiah, the person, the human being, even though those guys are a lot alike, he respected his game. He didn't mention his name. You know, I, I believe that. And when he was talking about the chemistry and the harmonious environment of the team would have been affected with Thomas on it, yeah, I believe that. So, yeah, everything that Jordan is talking about, look, the dream team to really work 
Everybody's talking about, oh, man, I can't believe in 1988. You also have to remember when John Thompson coached that 1988 Olympic team that lost to the Soviet Union in 82-76, and people were sitting up there whining and moaning, and I can't believe this. You also have to remember that you the pros now. You also have to remember that, A, there was a lot of college players, really good college players, that didn't want to play on the Olympic team that year. So even the notion that the... Uh, 1988 team, they didn't even have the best college players. There was much talk that if they would have had Purvis Ellison and I think Danny Manning and a couple of others that they all they would have probably beat the Soviet Union and won the um, gold medal, but that's neither here nor there. There was also some instances before that where you had Oscar Schmidt for Brazil in the Pan American Games, like he scored like 85,000 points in the second half against a United States team led by Mike Krzyzewski at that time, and there was some couple of other examples of the United States basketball team losing an international play, which, you know, piss people off. And, you know, in this country, if, you know, if we, if we can't brag and boast and talk about how good we are and how big our dick is, then we have to go ahead and it's, it's a total calamity. But uh, for this situation, yeah, so they brought in the dream team. This was going to be great. and This was going to be awesome. And it was a marketing deal. And it was a great way for the NBA to uplift their profile even more, get it in front of people and get it in front of, uh, the global a global stage like the Olympics and, and, and again move the move the league up to places no one dared venture 10, 15, 20 years ago at that time. But for it to really, really work in terms of getting the full effectiveness of this whole deal that the NBA and the FIBA and they were going to be doing, three players had to be on the team. Three. No question about it. Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan. Those three had to be on the team, bar none. Everybody else who was going to be picked for that team was just going to be fillers and background vocals. That's all. You had to have Magic Bird and MJ. We don't care about Patrick Ewing or David Robinson or Carl Malone or Isaiah Thomas or Chris Mullen or Scotty Pippen or I don't care who it was. I don't, doesn't matter. Anybody, Clyde Drexler, don't matter. MJ, Bird, Magic have got to be on that team. Magic, MJ, and Bird were Michael Jackson. The rest of those guys were Randy, Tito, Marlon, and Jermaine. Magic, Bird, and MJ were Beyonce. The rest of those clowns were Michelle Williams and Kelly Rowland, baby. Magic, Bird, and MJ were Method Man. And the rest of that Wu-Tang clue of, of ODB, RZA, and Jizza, those made up Patrick Ewing and David Robinson and John Stockton. Bird, Magic, MJ were Levi Stubbs. And the rest of those guys were Obi Benson, Abdul Fakir, and Lawrence Payton Jr. They were the tops. Levi put the four tops into the tops. So MJ Bird and Magic, they were the superstars. They were the guys. So the rest of the team, Charles Barkley, Patrick Ewing, Scotty Pippen, David Robinson, Carl Bellman, Malone, Clyde Drexler, John Stockton, Chris Mullen, Christian Leitner, Christian Leitner, you know, over Shaquille O'Neal, another debate for another topic, but yeah, those guys, those guys really had no say. So it really didn't matter. No one was going to be sitting up there talking about, well, you know, we really, you know, Magic Bird and Isaiah, they, excuse me, Magic Bird and MJ, they really want Isaiah on the, on the team. But David Robinson said, you know what, if he's on there, I'm not playing. Or, yeah, you know, MJ and OK, you know, Thomas being on the team along with Magic and Bird. But, you know, that Chris Mullen, Chris Mullen was a little bit salty about it and, 
And, uh, you know, Clyde Drexler was like, I don't know, so we're going to have to leave him off. No, no. I mean, it wasn't matter was those guys didn't have any say-so in terms of who was going to be on the team. Those guys were one of those where it was like, look, you should be honored. Honored that you're going to be on this squad. Magic, Bird, and Jordan, we need you on this squad. And MJ was like, hey, look, man, I already played in the Olympics. I already got my gold medal. What's the incentive for me, especially after winning another championship and doing what I'm doing? What's the incentive for me to come back and play again? So I think those Colangelo and Rob Thorne and all those guys who put the team together, I don't know if Colangelo, Jerry Colangelo, was, um, was, uh, had any involvement with USA Basketball at the time. I know later on he did. But the guys who put that team together, I mean, I don't, I don't think – it was a situation where, you know, we need to ask Jordan his thoughts and opinions about Isaiah Thomas. That was pretty much known that, you know what, if we want to have MJ be on this team, we've got to make sure that, you know, we don't put any roadblocks. We don't have, we don't do any, we don't have any self-inflicting wounds to hurt our chances of this guy being on the Olympics. I mean, Jordan wasn't, as we can use this cliche, he wasn't a slam dunk. Jordan was just yearning and fawning and pawning and begging and pleading to be on the Olympic teams. It was one of those, you could take it, you could, you know, you know, take it or leave it. It would be interesting to see, even if Jordan, let's say Magic was like, nah, you know, I don't think so. And Bird was like, nah, I'm good. My back injury and everything. I'm going to take a break. Really don't need it. It would be interesting if Bird and Magic didn't um, decide to join the Olympic team, even with the rest of those guys. I don't know if I don't know if Jordan was even would, would even entertain going to Barcelona and doing that. I think it was a situation where he saw that Magic and Bird was going to do it and Isaiah was not going to be on the team. He was like, cool, I'll do it. You know, I got my good friend Barkley on the team. I mean, that's just icing on the cake. But yeah, Magic and Bird were the ones that convinced Jordan to go to the Olympics. I also think that, I'm quite sure Nike got together with Mike and said, you know what, if you go to the uh, Olympics, this is how much you can improve your profile. This is how much more more money you can make. I mean, this is how much more of a global icon that you can become, which means more money in your pocket, which gives you more fame, which equals more money, gives you a greater status. And I mean, that's where, you know, also I think those guys kind of got in and convinced Jordan that maybe this was the thing to do. If you really wanted to seal it without question, all you needed to say was, hey, you know what, Jerry Krause thinks that, you know what, you're, you should just stay home, you should relax, you know, you shouldn't play with those guys, I mean, you know, I mean, Barkley and those guys, I mean, they might kind of show that, you know, they're just as good as you are, so if I were you, I would just kind of stay home and relax this summer, you don't need to, you don't need to have your mantle of the best player threatened, if I were you, if I were you, I would stay home, if it were me, I'd stay home, and maybe that should have been the pitch to Michael Jordan, in terms of sealing the deal, if he wanted to play or not. I bet you, <laughs> I bet you, Michael Jordan hated Jerry Krause so much. I'm quite sure Isaiah Thomas could have been on the team and as much as Michael Jordan would have hated Isaiah Thomas and would have hated the experience of playing with Isaiah Thomas, the fact that Jerry Krause would have suggested that Michael Jordan shouldn't play on the team probably would have been like, oh yeah, what did he say? Then I shouldn't play? Fuck you, I'm playing. It would have been one of those deals. That's how much, <laughs> that's how much Michael Jordan seems you know, taking a look at the documentary, it seems that's how much he hated Jerry Krause. But yeah, when Jerry Krause goes, says go right, Jordan's going left and saying fuck you while he's doing it. But uh, yeah, so those other guys, it really didn't matter. And for the team harmony and the team chemistry that Isaiah messed all that stuff up, look, again, I mean, who were the alpha males on that team? It was two guys. 
because Bird was kind of a guy who, you know, when I want to take a backseat, I don't have the, I'm not the Larry Bird of 1985-86 and, you know, this, that, and the other. So, look, I'm mainly here as a symbolic, you know, the league moving up, you know, elevating itself to where Jordan took it to another level. So, I'm that guy who's just going to be there. You're not going to be getting the vintage Larry Bird. I'll give you a few minutes. I'll give you a few highlights and a few memories. But, you know, don't expect me to go out there and be the Larry Bird that you guys are thinking about when you saw me play with the Boston Celtics when we were going up, going up against Magic and winning championships, three of the 1980s. I'm not that guy anymore. So the two main leader alpha dogs were Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan. And I think everybody else knew that. So Charles Barkley wasn't going to rock the boat. Patrick Ewing wasn't going to rock the boat. I mean, guys like Clyde Drexler and John Starkton and Chris Mullen and, of course, Christian Leitner and Carl Malone and David Robinson. I mean, those guys kind of knew. I mean, look, I'm not going to be fucking with those guys. Magic and Bird. Those guys are, I mean, Magic and MJ. Those guys are the leaders. You know, I don't think Patrick Ewing's going to be sauntering, going to be sauntering into practice and start, you know, thinking that he's that his shit don't stink and you know start telling Jordan and Magic what to do. I, I don't don't think Patrick Ewing was gonna take that role. You know, when they talk about the leaders of the squad, I don't think John Stockton and Clyde Drexler were gonna get up and be like, all right guys, you know, here's what we're doing. You know, I'm the man, you know, MJ, you listen to me, Magic, sit down and listen to me. That that shit wasn't gonna be happening. So the guys that they picked in terms of being the teammates, in terms of being the role players, in terms of, again, being the background singers. I mean, you know, the, the those were the guys who knew their role. I don't know if Isaiah would have been that guy. I think Isaiah would have been that guy who was kind of like, hey, you know what, I'm on the same level as Magic and Jordan. I've won two NBA championships. I'm one of the greatest players you've ever played. I've done this. I'm an all-star, and I'm an MVP, all-star game MVP, and I'm first-team all-NBA. Why should I, why should I take a back seat? I mean, why should I go ahead and acquiesce to Michael Jordan or to uh, Magic Johnson? I beat Magic Johnson in the NBA Finals. What are you talking about? I beat Michael Jordan multiple times in the Eastern Conference Championships. Why should I be subservient to what their to what their whims are? Screw them. So I think in that situation, I think, you know, Isaiah would have been that guy. And again, it would have brought a little friction. And I guess on that team, you really didn't want to have fractions set because, or groups set because of one player dividing. I mean, you know, Bird and... Patrick Ewing became good friends, and you know the, you you had certain groups of folks who kind of hung around with each other. But it wasn't because you know we don't like that one guy, or we don't like this guy, or we don't want to be hanging around that guy. I mean, MJ and Barkley and were great friends, and Magic and MJ. They said in the documentary, would play cards all night long and all that kind of stuff. So you had that type of stuff going on, but so you had different fractions amongst the team. You know, maybe during their free time that, you know, not all 12 guys were, you know, s- you know sitting around each other and, 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 you know, telling each other their deepest secrets and who, who you know, who, who they're cheating on with their wives. But it was a situation with Isaiah. I think there would have been some friction in terms of, you know what, if Isaiah's over there, yeah, I'm going to stay over there because I'm going to go on the other side because, well, I don't like him. So I, I think all of that put into the mixture or was put into the decision. So with Rob Thorne and everything, when they were asking, hey, you know, when Jordan says that those guys never asked me, you know, would I play if Isaiah Thomas or they never brought up the mention that, you know, Isaiah Thomas is going to be on the team or do you want Isaiah Thomas on the team? I think that's true because I think 
I think those guys were smart enough to realize that, you know, if we want Jordan on this team, we need Jordan on this team. And if it means sacrificing Isaiah Thomas, oh, well, so be it. And, you know, Thomas dug his own grave in some certain situations. Magic didn't like him because at the time, you know, that fierce rival that they had when the Lakers and Pistons went against each other. And Bird didn't like him because, you know, you remember the comments that uh, that Isaiah Thomas made after Game 7 of the 1987 Eastern Conference Finals where he was talking about he agreed with Dennis Rodman in the uh, locker room. He went on, it was right there on, um, right there on video or right there in in the audio recording. That you know, he made the comment that if, if Bird wasn't, if Bird was, uh, if he was a black guy instead of a white guy, he'd just be another average NBA basketball player. I mean, you know, shit like that. That Thomas uh, did, you know, it was one of those where he kind of dug his own grave to where Larry Bird, I don't like him. Magic Johnson, I don't like him. All right, he ain't on the team. This is too important for the NBA. I mean, we're going to be now global ambassadors, man. We're going to be superstars. We're going to be, you know, in front of the entire world. We have to show unity. We have to show harmony. There's no scandals, no drama, none of that bullshit. Now, eventually there was all of that stuff, but, you know, Isaiah would be the guy to even bring even more, you know, distraction and scandals and some other bullshit that went with it. So, I I, uh, I, I agree with Jordan, where it was kind of like, look, they never asked me, but I'm quite sure the answer would be, uh, the next question would have been, well, if they did ask you, what would you have said? <laughs> If, if they did say, hey, Jordan, do you want Isaiah on the team? What would have been your answer? And if Isaiah was on the team, would you still want to, would you still go ahead and do it? That should have been the next two questions because I'm quite sure those answers would have been, those answers would have been, no, I don't want him on the team. Yes, it would affect my decision to be on the team, which is I won't be on the team. So, you know, there you go. So put it in, put the ball in your court, if I could use that cliche. Wendell's World of Sports. The podcast, Wendell Wallace, your host. So glad that you could be with us. I remember, as far as the ass whooping that they gave and the whole stuff that went down with Tony, Tony Kukoc and the Croatia deal. You got to remember also, man. I remember Marv, not Marv Albert. Oh, Al, oh my goodness. The head coach for Marquette. He did college basketball for NBC for a while. Al McGuire. Thank you. Ooh, age sucks. Al McGuire. I remember him being on a, on a show, Roy Firestone show. And they were talking about the Dream Team and this, that, the other. Now McGuire actually was sitting there talking about, yeah, I think Croatia will win. And Firestone was like, why? It's because, well, his answer was, well, I mean, you know, the Dream Team, this whole collection of NBA superstars, they really haven't had a chance to work with each other, and they're all going to be put together so quickly. And, you know, with Croatia, they've been playing together. They're a real team. They've been playing basketball for years together, and they've competed in tournaments together, and they've been through tough situations together. So the Croatian national team is a much more cohesive unit, and I think that's going to be the reason why they beat the USA, a basketball team. This is what Al McGuire was saying back in 1992. Uh, when they were talking about the chances of, uh, you know, a team upsetting the USA. So, you know, it wasn't all peaches and creams and rosies. And I also remember the backlash because during that time, I mean, you were talking about NBA basketball players. I mean, you know, Jordan and those guys, I mean, they were staying in the most exclusive hotels and, you know, they were eating and dining the finest meals. And I mean, they were living like kings over there, man. I mean, they were living great. You know, they were living like royalty. And I remember the backlash that some of our uh, country's athletes 
head toward the United States basketball team. Like, oh, I can't believe it, man. Why do those guys get to stay in, like, five-star exclusive hotels and not stay in the uh, village like the rest of us? Man, this is horrible. This is terrible. These guys, I guess his name was Rob Bowman, I guess. I don't know. I remember a couple of swimmers and a couple of track and field folks and a couple of other guys who were in who were in competition and doing events that no one gave a fuck about. Those guys were sitting up there talking about, oh, that isn't fair, man. I mean, the NBA, I mean, these guys are superstars. They get the spotlight on them every single, every day of the year. I mean, this is our one chance to be superstars. This is our one chance to be celebrities. This is our one chance to have the spotlight on us. And this is our one chance that these guys are taking it away from us. This sucks. This is terrible. Which is like absolute utter bullshit. Number one, I thought you went to the Olympics to compete for gold medals, not for not for airtime on NBC or sit-down interviews with Bob Costas or Katie Couric. I thought whether you're an archer, whether you're a rower, whatever, I thought the main reason why you guys went to the Olympics was to win the gold medal, to justify the hard work and the sacrifice. And I also thought that in terms of winning the gold medal, that would propel you to other avenues of financial gain because you are an Olympic champion in whatever competition that you're competing in. So why do you give a fuck whether where the NBA basketball players are staying or why do you care if they're getting most of the immediate attention or why do you care if those folks in Barcelona and all over the world are gawking and fawning all, themselves all over Charles Barkley and Patrick Ewing and Chris Mullen and those guys? Why do you fucking care, right? I thought your main deal was about to be winning a gold medal. Shut the fuck up and swim and win a gold medal. Hater. Jealous. So I, I just remember that backlash, you know, and, you know, sorry, sorry. I mean, I can't believe they're taking away attention. Well, because, you know what, you know what, buddy? Life sucks. Get used to it. Too bad. You know, really? Do you know the reason why that no one gives a fuck about you in your archery competition and now wants to fawn and follow and report on everything that the dream teamers do? Because they're NBA superstars and you're an archer. Sorry. Man, you know, it's kind of like asking, you know, man, it's, it's like some Whoopi Goldberg ugly looking bitch talking about, man, I can't believe it. Why does Halle Berry and Selma Hayek and Jay the Fighter and Monica Bellucci, why do they get all the attention? Why do they get all the magazine covers? Why do everybody talk about their beautifulness? Why is it that people fawn over them? Why? Because they are Halle Berry and they look like Halle Berry and they look like Selma Hayek and they look like, uh, you know, I mean, they look like Shantae Moore and you look like you. I mean, you know, that's the way it is. I mean, you know, I mean, man, why am I going to the club? Why is it that I'm not getting all the females and the females coming over to look at me? Well, because I look like me and some other guy might be, uh, you know, as, as, as my gal Ashley Walters told me way back when, back in the day, my last day in Phoenix, before I moved up to Vegas back in 19... When did I move to Vegas? 2003. Yeah, 2003. Ashley Walters. Beautiful female. Man, she was beautiful. Phoenix, Arizona. Beautiful. Man, I was so much in lust with her. Beautiful gal. And I used to just relentlessly, not stalkingly, but whenever I got an opportunity to talk about how absolutely beautiful she was and what could I do to be your guy and all that kind of stuff, I was not passing up on that opportunity. She was beautiful. I haven't seen her since, but she was one beautiful gal. So, I remember, she probably finally took pity on me. I'm moving to Vegas. Why not? It's a free meal. I'm hungry. I got nothing better to do, so I'll entertain and humor this clown. Okay, Wendell, we'll go to lunch. 
she was dating somebody at the time. I didn't care. I was leaving. Give it one more shot, right? So I'm sitting up there at lunch, and, you know, we're having a good time. And, look, she, I mean, she always knew that I was half kidding. I mean, that's probably the reason why she put up with my stupidity and my bullshit and my nonsense. But, you know, she knew I was just joking. And I knew I had no shot with her. I mean, look at me and look at her. I mean, come on. I mean, I, I knew that. I knew that. Phoenix, Arizona, she's white, I'm black. I mean, come on, give me a break. So I, I, eyes wide open on this one. You know, wasn't losing any sleep, wasn't shedding any tears. You know what I mean? You might as well go for the best. And if you miss, hey, you might as well shoot for the uh, stars. And if you miss... You can still be in the atmosphere to put a bullet hole in Mars. So, I mean, Pete Rock CL smooth. So I was like, you know, actually, you know, my last day, I just got to let you know. I mean, I just got to know something. I mean, you know, my last day before I head up to Vegas, you know, I'm really going to miss you, this, that, and the other. But, man, let me tell you something. You got yourself this guy that you're going with here. You seem to be happy. But what is it about him, huh? What is it about him that makes you want to be with him, that makes you want to be in a relationship with him other than me? Well, Wendell... As she said, as she scoffed down a meal, and as she saw me sweat at the check came to me, and I had to pull out my wallet and, you know, pull out my wallet and take out my money. Well, you know, he has PEP. I, you don't have enough, oh, she, she told me, you don't have enough PEP. I don't have enough PEP. What? What do you mean I don't have enough PEP? Yeah. You don't have enough potential earning power for me to even consider being in a relationship with you. That's number one. That's just to start things off. I mean, you know, so, I mean, bing a bang a boom right there. Not No potential earning power. I was like, okay, well, damn. Well, I mean, how do you know? I mean, I'm going to go up to Vegas. I could do my thing. I mean, who knows? I might hit the lottery or whatever. I don't know. I might get a good hit of blackjack and keep going. You know, I mean, the crap table might be nice to me. I mean, how do you know that, you know, I won't be able to financially take care of you and do this, that, and the other with you? What is it about this guy? No, seriously. What is it about this guy that you're dating now that, he has over me. And she looks at me and says, well, he's younger, better looking, and he makes more money. And I said, okay, let me break this down. He's younger, true. Better looking, true. And he makes more money, true. All right. <laughs> you win. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, yeah, I concede. The winner and still champion is the guy that Ashley Walters is dating. And the loser is this guy right here who's heading off to Vegas. So I got you. I got you. So I don't even know how this even tied into what I was talking about. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was talking about, uh, you know, hey, these guys who aren't Michael Jordan, who don't have the stature, who don't have the celebrity, who don't have the money, who don't have the earning power, who don't have the game, who don't play the right sport, these Olympians, in terms of, you know, why is it that Michael Jordan's getting all the attention? Why is it that Larry Bird and... Magic Johnson getting all the attention and not me, this archer, this track and field guy, this shot putter. Oh, I don't believe it. Well, because, you know, because Michael Jordan is rich, famous, plays basketball, and you don't. Period. End of discussion. So, yeah. So, in this situation, hey, you know what? <laughs> I can definitely understand what you're talking about. But I remember watching those games with my man, Puerto Rican Chris Ortiz, back in the day. It was a fun experience to watch those guys play, man. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity just to see those guys out there dominating basketball. I mean, having guys like Bird and Magic and Jordan play, it was awesome. It was an awesome sight, and it laid down the foundation for the global expansion of the game. And you started seeing guys from all over the world 
come in. And we wouldn't have a Giannis Adenokupo. We wouldn't have a Tony Pacquiao of the San Antonio Spurs. We wouldn't have a Luka Doncic. We wouldn't have any of these guys. We wouldn't have a Steve Nash or any of these great, great, great basketball players who are in the NBA today winning MVPs and leading teams to championships and doing all these great things. The expansion and the love that basketball has in this other countries and these other countries to where we're talking about basketball being the second most popular sport in the world behind the game of football, a.k.a. soccer here in the United States. But yeah, I mean, whether we're talking about Australia, whether we're talking about Africa, whether we're talking about Europe, whether we're talking about Canada, whether we're talking about whatever, you know, Japan, China, uh, the NBL in, in Australia, New Zealand. I mean, basketball has just exploded, exploded around the world. And the germation of this can be led to Barcelona 1992, the NBA Dream Team. And you can thank Chuck Daly. You can thank Patrick Ewing. You can thank David Robinson. You can thank Chris Mullen. You can thank John Stockton. You can thank Carl Malone. You can thank Clyde Drexler. You can thank all of those fabulous, wonderful basketball players and great endorsers, Scottie Pippen, Charles Barkley, those great, great basketball players for not only being such great basketball players, but also being such great endorsers. You can thank all those guys. But you can also mainly thank Magic, Bird, and at the top of the list, baby, you can thank Michael Jordan. Make it fun. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hello. How are you doing? Everything good? Everything all right? Seriously, man, how are you doing? Sit down, talk to me, relax, have a break, relax, do what you're doing. I hope you're doing all right. I hope sitting at home isn't driving you crazy. I hope when you're walking, when you're walking the dog, when you're walking with your loved ones, or no, not when you're not walking with your loved ones. Don't listen to me when you're walking with your loved ones, but... Uh, you know, when you're walking and you want a little entertainment and you're doing some things, you know, you might want to have some noise on the background in terms of doing some house cleaning, whatever. Wendell's World and Sports, man, especially as long-winded as I am. If you got something to wear, if you're going on a long trip and you need something as far as like two hours, two and a half hours to keep you going, let me be your company. I mean, I can almost make a song about that. Let me be your company. Uh, I said, let me be your company. Yeah. Let me be your company. Whether you're driving to the east or whether you're driving to the west, you know the Wendell Wallace show, you know it's definitely the best. Good God. Let me be your company, girl. Uh, tonight. Uh, let me be your company, girl. How do you look? Uh. All right. I'm getting a little bit off track. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Just one more thing speaking about this whole Summer Olympics of 1992, Summer Olympics, Michael Jordan, the Dream Team, what they did for basketball. It's interesting because coming up next, I'm going to be talking about Michael Jordan, the activist, Michael Jordan, the political figure, you know, that type of deal. And you really have to think about this. You have to think about the contributions, and the sacrifices. And I'll hit this on a pretty broad stroke um, in terms of 
historical figures from my community. You have to think about the Jack Johnsons and the Joe Lewises and the Larry Dobies and the Hank Aarons and the Oscar Robertsons and the Fritz Pollards and the John McClendons and the Eddie Robinsons and the Jackie Robinsons and the Otis Reddings and the Sam Cooks and the Motown Sound and Curtis Mayfield and James Brown and Aretha Franklin and Thurgood Marshall. I mean, on and on and on and on and on. But especially when you're talking about the impact that the Dream Team had and the ability for people, for athletes, for people like Magic Johnson, Irvin Magic Johnson, and Michael Jordan, and David Robinson, and Carl Malone, and Patrick Ewing, and, and, and Scottie Pippen, and Charles Barkley. I mean, these folks who are from Leeds, Alabama, Wilmington, North Carolina, East Lansing, Michigan. I mean, you take a look at someone like Larry Bird, who I'm basically in this, where he came from, French Lake, Indiana, and his upgrade, upbringing could be referred to in some sections of this country as white trash. You know, if you're speaking about the poverty and the and the uh, home life of a young Larry Bird, I mean, he could be described in some ignorant terms as being white trash. Uh, Hamburg, Arkansas, Summerfield, Louisiana, all of these great basketball players, historical figures, great black, black basketball players, not coming from New York City, not coming from Chicago, Illinois, not coming from Los Angeles, California, not coming from the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the metropolitan area, not coming from these, you know, huge markets, these huge, huge cities. I mean, we're speaking again about down south in the 1960s. We're speaking about Leeds, Alabama, Charles Barkley's upbringing back in the 1960s, Carl Malone's upbringing in Summerfield, Louisiana, Scotty Pippen's upbringing in Hamburg, Arkansas. You know, these places where these guys came from. Patrick Ewing coming from Jamaica to live in the suburbs of Boston, Massachusetts at the time where, you know, folks in Boston didn't want black folks leaving their community to try to integrate with their schoolers and integrate with their kids and then want to move into their neighborhoods. I mean, these global icons, these global superstars, these guys, because of their prowess on the basketball court, were able to change people's opinions about race and thoughts and feelings about other people's, you know, uh, races and genders and everything. These are where these guys came from. Summerfield, Louisiana. Wilmington, North Carolina. Unbelievable. When you really take a look at the direction and the avenue and where a where someone can be born is how someone can grow up to really make a difference in the way that they did it. Michael Jordan wasn't a bomb thrower in terms of, as I'll talk about later on, none of these guys were. I mean, Michael Jordan wasn't protesting. Magic Johnson wasn't out there kneeling during the national anthem. Carl um, Malone and David Robinson, they weren't in the, they weren't showing any displays of disrespect while the national anthem or anything else was going on during that time. The way these guys became global icons and influenced and really helped our community, really helped how the outside of our community, those of different faces and places and genders and religions and races, the way that they took a look and gave the black community a chance and learned from us were through the basketball playing, just basketball playing, playing, not marching, not speeches, not uh, acts of defiement, nothing like that, not uh, uh, through uh, any type of those situations. It was through playing basketball. Powerful stuff, man. 
powerful stuff when you think about it. And I'm quite sure when Jordan hit some of the rocky roads, not the ice cream, but the rocky roads in terms of his uh, political, you know, the, some of the political situations that he got into, his lack of not really stepping out front and saying anything, I'm quite sure there was someone in his camp or someone in his ear who said, you know, Michael, don't worry about it, man. I mean, you know, when you out there and you help a sick kid or when you go out there and you help sell some sneakers or when you go out there in front of a bunch of white folks and you score 50-something points in front of, uh, you know, folks who don't live around black folks, folks whose kids don't go to the same school that black folks do, those who can go, I don't know, sometimes week, weeks without dealing with black folks or dealing with brown folks or dealing with Hispanics. You know what you're doing for those folks? You are the guy that's helping move the needle in terms of race relations because they're seeing you. And so they're seeing you. They're seeing a guy who's educated. They're seeing a guy who can speak well. They're seeing a guy who dresses to the nine. They're seeing a guy with a little bit of swag. They're seeing a guy, a dark-skinned guy too. Jordan wasn't light-skinned. His wife was. Jordan wasn't light-skinned. So, I mean, he was black personified. I mean, he was midnight black. And you see this guy. So Jordan was like, okay, you know, I'm moving the needle here and I'm this iconic guy and I'm not getting in any trouble. If you don't hear any stories about me beating on my wife or, you know, having dog rings and being obstructing justice in a double murder or anything like that, I'm not getting in that type of trouble. You know, I'm not getting caught putting blow up my nose or putting any type or putting myself in those types of situations. You're getting pulled over for DUIs. You're not seeing any mug shots on the six o'clock news with me. I don't, I'm not leading off the crime and justice file shows with me doing stuff. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good Negro. I'm a good guy. I'm a nice guy, you know? So in my, dif my difference, indifference to anything that's going on in terms of our community, well, I'm doing my part to try to help the community by just playing basketball and being the best basketball player that I can. And seeing this white kid kind of idolize me and want to buy my Jordans and want to buy my gear and want to be like Mike. Just like that Gatorade commercial, dude, 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 dude. If you take a look at that Gatorade commercial, how many black folks do you see Michael Jordan in terms of the, 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 the black kids or anything like that? How many of them do you see on the sidelines ooing and awning and fawning and wanting to be like Mike? Nah, man. You, who? Gatorade's up there putting a whole bunch of young little white kids right in front of the guy. Because it's like, this man is okay. That's what he's telling the white community. That's what they're telling. That's what Gatorade and Jordan are telling the white folks. Hey, don't worry about us. You don't have to be scared. You don't have to be. I mean, you got Mike Tyson over here. He's a scary dude and this, that, and the other. Nah, for me, I'm a nice guy. I'm the nice Negro. You see that? I'm I'm cool with your kids. You see that? Your kids can put my posters on their wall. My, your kids can go ahead and stick their tongue out when they're playing basketball. You, you guys can go ahead and do all that because I'm safe. You know, I'm a good Negro in his mind, or maybe, who knows? I don't know. I don't want to speak for the man, but, you know, maybe someone was telling Jordan, you know, for you to express your activism or you to be a partner or to you to be a participant in moving the needle in terms of race relations and bringing them all together. Hey, man, you just keep scoring points. You keep bringing out good looking shoes. You keep bringing out your apparel and don't get in trouble. And that's the way that you can go ahead and do your part in terms of being the Muhammad Ali of this era. Wrong, but uh, I'm quite sure, you know, hey, the good Negro willing to shut up and dribble. That's the main reason why, man. You're a global superstar. You're making $35, $40 million a year, most of that coming from endorsements. Why in the world would you want to fuck that up? So it's like, all right, all right, all right. But after that, though, again, 
after the Summer Olympics, it was like um, this whole stuff about Harvey Gantt and Jesse Helms. The, 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 the documentary did a great job bringing up the North Carolina Senate race between Democrat Harvey Gantt and Jesse Helms. Gantt was trying to become the first black congressman from North Carolina to serve in the U.S. Senate. And he ran against one of the most most repugnant racist folks in a while. Jesse Helms died at 86. Thank goodness the world is without someone like a Jesse Helms. Now, if a couple others could follow, that would be great. From, but I'm not going to mention their names. But, you know, so he ran against. So this was a situation where if Jordan were to come out and say, you know, Harvey Gantz, my guy, this, that, and the other, I mean, don't know how much it would affect him because, after all, we're speaking about Jesse Helms, okay? I mean, Jesse flipping Helms. You know, read his history. Read some of the stuff and listen to some of the stuff that he says. Yeah, Jordan wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been going so much on a leg, on a limb, to go ahead and say a nice, some nice things about Harvey Gantt. So, you know, Jordan didn't do anything of any substance to help uh, Gantt win. And, of course, the comment that he made, Republicans buy sneakers too. That's where those in my community, the ear per, ears perked up and said, "Oh man, really, Mike? You're gonna go that? You're gonna do that? Really? I mean, here we are in North Carolina. We're still treated like second-class citizens, not legally, but you know, we still have the stigma. We're still trying to fight racism. We're still trying to fight bigotry. We're still trying to fight second-class citizenship. We're doing all this kind of stuff, man. And you can't even utter a sentence." I'm not asking you to take residence in the black community. I'm not asking you to live on the side of the tracks. I'm not asking you to sacrifice in terms of anything financial. I'm not asking you to live the life that we're living. I'm not asking you to do that, Mike. We know as far as a black man, you're on a different plane than us. I get you. I got you. As Jim Brown says, I don't have the ability. The poor black folks in North Carolina, they don't have the ability to make a change like you do. They don't have the chance to... They don't have the opportunity. They don't have the pedestal. They don't have the leaping ability. They don't have the basketball boots. They don't have the stature. They don't have the baggy shorts. They don't have the resume to go ahead and make a difference like you can. So just say, hey, Harvey Grant's a good guy. Just how about that? We're not asking you to walk hand in hand with the guy. We're not asking you to give any stump speeches for the guy. You can't even do that because you're so insecure. You're so selfish. You're so single-minded about you know, we're protecting the millions upon millions upon millions of dollars that you have? Damn. All right. Interesting. Republicans buy sneakers too. Hmm. This is how Jordan explained it in this documentary about that uh, comment he made. I don't think that statement needs to be corrected because I said it in just, you know, on a bus with, you know, with Horace Grant and Scotty Pippen and it was, you know, thrown off the cuff. My mother asked to do a PSA for Harvey Gantt. And I said, look, mom, I'm not speaking out of pocket about someone I don't know. But I will send a contribution to support it, which is what I did. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know, man. He doesn't need to defend the statement. He said it in jest, joking around with Pippin and Horace Grant. But you said it, though, Mike. I mean, that's the deal. I mean, you said it in jest. Even if you say it in jest, there's a kernel of truth. Look, man, we all joke. You know, we all make jokes when we're around the boys and this, that, and the other. I mean, I have a friend who's Jewish, and if we went public or some of the audio that ever aired between the jokes that we made each, made for each other and me speaking about the Jewish community and him speaking about the black community, you would swear that we're two of the most racist folks that you've ever wanted to meet sometimes when we go after each other. 
but it's just that. It's just us two. We know what we're all about. We know what we stand for. We know how deeply we care about human beings and other folks' communities. We're laughing. We're joking. We're cutting up. We're playing to the stereotype. That's what we're doing. Now, in our jokes that we have, that they're a kernel of truth, yeah. When he talked about, you know, colored people's time and all that kind of stuff, yeah. When I talk about, hey, you know what, when I get super rich, I'm going to get myself a Jewish accountant because of, you know, how smart you guys are and math, ha, ha, ha. Or is, there, or is there is there a kernel of truth in all of those things, in all of those words of just, yes, yes. But is that the entire deal in terms of, yeah, I really think every Jewish person is great in math. Or, yeah, or my buddy thinks, yeah, everybody who's black is going to show up 15 minutes late to every function. Is that, do we actually think that? No. But we take that stereotype, just like any comic, and we just put it to absurd measures, and we say it to each other. And we don't let it slip out because it's like, we know it's our joke. You know, we're in on the joke. So when Jordan is up there talking about, yeah, you know, I said, hey, Republicans buy sneakers too, this, that, and the other. And I said it in jest and I was joking around and this, that, and the other. Yeah, that's, that's true. I, I'm quite sure. Yeah, I mean, Republicans do buy sneakers. Yeah, I'm quite sure that, you know, if you said something in terms of, you know, Jesse Helms is a racist, pathetic, piece of shit asshole, and Harvey Gantz the guy, I'm quite sure that Republicans might say, you know what, Michael, fuck you, I'm not going to go ahead and buy any of your shoes, I'm not going to go ahead and buy any of your gear, and I'm just, you just need to shut up and dribble, and, you know, white folks is giving you a great opportunity to do this and do that and make a whole bunch of money, so who do you get off telling, you know, telling saying something like that you ain't a senator you're a basketball player you're not a public figure in terms of politics or anything like that you know you're speaking out of pocket you're speaking out of your turn you're speaking out of lane i I can see where that some republicans some of those who have bought michael jordan gear before might go with that sentiment but again i would be a small number and if you're going against Michael, if you're going against Jesse Helms, of all of all people, don't think it would have put a dent so much into your financial abilities that it was like, oh, I'm staying away from that. Now, let me let me stay in the shadows about that one. So it's it's almost like what he was talking about. Yeah, he was just joking around and this, that, and the other. Okay, you were joking around about Republicans buy sneakers, but you were also serious, too. You were jokingly serious. You were saying something that's a fact. Republicans buy sneakers. How much to a degree were you joking in terms of that? We don't know. But it's almost like, you know, you you see these folks or you hear these folks who say these, I don't know, ridiculous things or, you know, they're out in the town and they may say something that's embarrassing or awkward. It might be something dealing with race. It might be something dealing with gender. You might be out with your woman or you might be out with your man and you might say something that's really hurtful or you might say something that's really like below the belt in terms of a kernel of truth, you know? And then in the morning when they're sober, they say, well, I, I really didn't mean to say that. I was drunk. No, that I'm going to use the drunk excuse. No, 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 no. I'm not really a racist. I mean, yeah, all that shit that I said about Jews, yeah, I was just drunk. So how, you know, the Mel Gibson deal, you know? Oh, no, no. You know, we was up there talking about, I forgot, Mel Gibson. We said the derogatory comments about, uh, about Jewish people. And he was like, no, 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 no. I was, uh, I was just drunk. That's really not me. That's you. That's you. A little bit of you. How much of that is you? We don't know. That's that's for how much of you being a racist in that situation lends itself toward any type of real damage or, you know, depends upon your stature, depends upon your money. I mean, some fucking clown who I never heard of and there's nobody in life 
who's a racist and doesn't like black people, who gives a fuck? I don't care. I don't care if there's somebody of no regard, of no type of influence, of no type of, you know, stature in this world, in this society. If they don't like black folks, if they want to call black folks niggers, I don't care. How is that going, how is that going to hurt me? How is that going to take food off my table? How is that going to prevent me from getting a job? The stereotypical racist person that we think of, you know, the redneck, the, you know, out there in the South, and they talk lightly, and they've got no education, and they're idiots. I mean, why... Why should those words, those words mean nothing to me if it's going to be ignorant like that. Who cares? I don't care. It's not going to stop me from doing what I want to do. You're too fucking ignorant for that. And your racism is so, is so deepened that who cares? No one's going to listen to you. You're too much of an ignorant fool of a racist to be taken seriously. But, but all of a sudden now, when we start talking about some folks with some money, when we start talking about some folks with some influence, we start talking about some folks who are going to be selling me a house or selling me a car or determining upon where I live or putting money back into our school systems or contributing to our communities. I mean, if we're talking about those type of people with those type of powers and all of a sudden they're up here talking about calling us second class citizens and calling us niggers and all that, all that kind of stuff. Now, all of a sudden, now we've got a problem because now that's the situation where you could affect the way I live. You could affect the way I, the, 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 where I live. And who, and who I'm dealing with and my workplace environment and everywhere else. That's the same thing with Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan had that stature. If I came out and said, hey, you know what? Republicans buy sneakers too. Ha, ha, ha. Who the fuck am I? What, some guy doing a podcast? Who gives a fuck? But Michael Jordan all of a sudden and the influence that he has, whoa, now we're starting to uh, get a little bit serious. Now all of a sudden those phrases, that those words have some real meaning. Oh, okay. Now we're talking about it. So when he came up there and talked about, oh, you know, I just said it off the cuff and he was saying it in jest. Man, unfortunately, when you're Michael Jordan, unacceptable. Unacceptable. Especially when there was no follow-up. If he would have said, yeah, you know what, I did say Republicans buy sneakers too, but what also wasn't reported, and Horace and Scotty can back me up in saying this, and other folks who were around were saying, yeah, Republicans buy sneakers too, but you know what, I need to do what's right, and I need to make sure that this, that, and the other. If he would have swung that back around to, yeah, Republicans buy sneakers, but you know what, we have to do what's right, and we have to do what's right for the community, and we have to be good role models, and we have to make sure that our black kids stay in school and stay off the streets, and this, that, and the other, and make sure that the parents, and, you know, if he started talking that talk, then okay. Then what he would have said, Republican by sneakers, it has no merit. It has no teeth. It has no uh, weight. It has no strength. But when you just leave it off at that, Republicans don't buy sneakers and you leave it to those to insinuate exactly what you were talking about, what you were meaning about that. That's a very vague statement. Republicans buy sneakers too, or Republicans buy shoes too. Very vague. And you can take that in any direction. If you're a racist piece of shit full of white privilege and you're a white male, this, that, and the other, you could take it to where it means absolutely nothing. If you're a bomb-throwing sister soldier type, you could take it to being that Jordan is the biggest sellout since Ben Carson and, and, and uh, Clarence Thomas. So, you know, it, 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 was, it was left open for so much interpretation that if Jordan was just going to leave it like that, Republicans buy sneakers, and that's what he's known for, that phrase, then that's on his fault. And I can't defend him for the, well, I was just saying it just so I have nothing to apologize for. So his mother asked him, moving on, his mother asked him to do a PSA for Grant. And this is what he said. 
my mother asked to do a PSA for Harvey Gantt. And I said, look, mom, I'm not speaking out of pocket about someone I don't know. But I will send a contribution to support it, which is what I did. Conservative. Okay, I'll say it again. So it's like, well, you know, I, I refused to say anything or to do a PSA because I didn't know enough about him. But even though I didn't know enough about him, I knew enough about him to give him money for a financial contribution to support him. So that that's that's weak, you know. It's kind of like again, just shut up and dribble type, you know. So it, 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 there's there shows a there shows a spineless coward cowardliness to that situation. You, and, uh, so he just dropped a financial donation to him. I mean, could you even mention that? I mean, could you just say that when you did? You know, hey, you know what? During that time, so why did you have to be anonymous about it? Why? Because if you found out, if people found out, the public found out. The Republicans found out, the white folks in North Carolina found out, the people at Nike found out, the check writers who are writing you these million dollar checks, if they found out that, oh my goodness, Michael Jordan is su- supporting this black guy financially, we need to somehow drop him or somehow his his Q rating is going to go down or all of a sudden now the stocks in this company is going to go down or people are going to stop buying his shoes. I don't, I, I, mm, I don't, mm, that's the deal, man. That's, that's the deal. So again, it's weak. I mean, if you're, Mike, if you're truly, Mr. Jordan, if you're truly, you know, learn about the guy. Learn enough about the guy to say, hey, you know what? I think he could be a, do a little bit better job than Jesse Helms. All right? I mean, we're talking about far-right Jesse Helms. We're not talking about center-right or something like that. We're not talking about a moderate, moderate, uh, modern conservative. We're not moderate conservative. We're not talking about a Michael Steele-type conservative. We're not talking about a Steve Smith conservative or cons- cons- uh, Nicole Wallace conservative. We are speaking about a far-right racist conservative. So if Jordan, somebody, anybody, should have came up to him and said, look, man, if you go ahead and you speak out against Jesse Helms, don't worry. It's Jesse fucking Helms. No one is going to. And you don't even have to say Jesse Helms the racist. You don't even, if you're too spineless and gutless to even go in that direction, at least just say, hey, you know what? Maybe we can do a little bit better than Jesse Helms. Read up on him. <laughs> hey, Harvey Gantt, he's doing this, he's doing that. He stands for this, he stands for that. Kind of interested in that. I kind of like that. You know, don't, you don't even have to mention the fact that he's running against a fucking racist in Jesse Helms. MJ, if you're that concerned about your your potential earning power, Jesse fucking Helms, if you're not going to come out against Jesse Helms, if you're not going to support the candidate that's going up against Jesse Helms, then you ain't never going to do it. I mean, damn, I'm just glad that when David Duke was running for governor in Louisiana, with Michael Jordan playing back then, what would have been his uh, what would have been his excuse? Hey, Clay didn't buy sneakers too. I mean, come on, man. I mean, so, but I'll just slip uh, the guy that he's going against. I'll just I'll just give him a financial contribution. Come on, man. That's weak. That's weak. That's weak. I mean, and let me tell you something. How much was that financial contribution? Because in some instances, yeah. Again, depending upon the person is, I don't need your voice. I need your money. <laughs> I mean, in presidential campaigns, I mean, probably what's more important than voice is money. I need your money. But in Michael Jordan's situation, I need your money and your voice. So in this situation, I need your voice more than I need your money. So, you know, Jordan decided that, oh, well, this, that, and the other. So in the 1990 race, Gantt uh, lost by some 105,000 votes. Helms got up 53% of the vote. Gantt got 47%. Now, 
though people be out there and people are talking about oh, Jordan, Jordan made the difference and this, that, and the other. There was this ad that came out, um, the hands ad that Helms campaign ran before the election, which many people said in North Carolina, after all, again, we're speaking about the 90s, North Carolina. So this was the ad that came out that might have doomed Gantz campaign for him. You needed that job, and you were the best qualified, but they had to give it to a minority because of a racial quota. Is that really fair? Harvey Gantz says it is. Gantz supports Ted Kennedy's racial quota law that makes the color of your skin more important than your qualifications. You vote on this issue next Tuesday. For racial quotas, Harvey Gantz. Against racial quotas, Jesse Helms. So if you take a look from the audio, if you hear the audio, um, the hands of a white man crumples up the letter and the narrator said that you needed that job, you were willing, you were the best qualified, but they gave it to a minority because of a racial quota. Is that really fair? They was, you know, I mean, that bullshit. It, it, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that ad really, if somebody wanted to go ahead and rerun that ad in the, night, in the, in the uh, year 2020, that would still have legs. That would still be effective. That would still have teeth. I mean, maybe you can change it to a little bit there. They gave instead of instead of a minority, it could be they could give it. They gave it to an indoc, uh, uh, an illegal, or they gave it to uh, an, an uh, undocumented immigrant. So just cross out minority, minority, and put in immigrant, or something like that. It would work. It would fly. But that was the uh, that was the ad more than anything else. At the very least. Mr. Jordan, at the very least, man, and Jay, at least you could have criticized the ad. I mean, seriously? I mean, and, you know, I mean, again, I live in the stupidest country in the world, the United States of America. Just take a look at the person who's the president of the United States, and that's more than enough examples to show you how dumb of a country we are. Just take a look at the idiots that are out there in front of the state capitals talking about give us our freedom back because of this coronavirus and the self-quarantine. I mean, you only have to look that far to kind of realize that the United States is the stupidest country in the world. But it's like, wow, man, that was really that effective. And the fact that in 2020, that article can or that ad can run and still be effective again with a couple of with a couple of erasing and putting in certain words again. And man, at least Jordan, you could have just like said, yeah, the, the ad, yeah, not really. <laughs> I mean. Not really come, not really uh, digging the ad there, you know. Just a little playing on people's ignorances and fear. Eh, not really, you know. But he didn't. He didn't. So he disappointed the community for lack of voice and presence. So you know, in the deal, it's like it's almost like one of the things I've always said with the NBA, Jordan, Michael Jordan has been a curse, and he's been a blessing for the league. He's been a blessing because he's Michael Jordan and all that he's done for the league and just everything. I mean, the guy's just been awesome. But he's also been a curse because we're still we're still in Jordan's shadow. And there's 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 a decent enough people, there's a decent enough generation who saw Jordan play that won't really let this generation have their fair due, have their fair bow, have their fair spotlight, have their fair applause. Because it's like Jordan, 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 Jordan. I mean, damn, man. Kobe went through it. LeBron's going through it. I mean, it's like, why can't we just 
love and honor and cherish and appreciate these great basketball players more than what we do because everything has to be in the in the uh, prism of Michael Jordan. So LeBron does something great. Oh, heaven forbid that we go ahead and talk about how great he is because somebody's going to sit up there and go, oh, yeah, well, Jordan did this and Jordan did that. It's like, come on, man. Don't leave, leave fucking Michael Jordan alone, huh? That's no fucking 1998. All right? It's been 20 fucking years. Okay? Now, if you're still got a hard on, you still want to suck with Johnson, fine. But damn, man, at least establish, at least acknowledge what LeBron is doing, what Kobe's doing, what James Harden is doing what Russell Westbrook is doing, what Giannis is doing, all these great basketball players, man. You know what Chris Paul is doing. With all of these great basketball players who helped resuscitate the league starting in 2003 and bring it up to another level. Can't we just honor and praise and congratulate full-throatedly 100% instead of having, yeah, but Jordan this, Jordan that. Fuck that motherfucker in terms of that shit, man. 2020. All right, Jordan is long gone. And the question now with this coming up, it's going to be Jordan this and Jordan that. And oh my goodness, now we can get back to bashing LeBron again and bringing up what he did against Dallas in 2011 and bringing back the decision where he left Cleveland to go to Miami and more fodder to put Jordan back into the front seat again and talk about Jordan, Jordan, Jordan and bash LeBron about why he's never, he's never going to be as good as Jordan. We're going to have to bring that bullshit up again. Man, but it's just like, so it's like that deal. So that's what I'm talking about, Jordan being a curse and being a blessing. It's the same thing now with Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, for the world and for our community, has been both, and I won't even say a curse for the world, but at least in certain degrees, Muhammad Ali has been a curse. The blessings way outweigh, outweigh, outweigh the curse for athletes for Muhammad Ali. I mean, Muhammad Ali, everything that every praise, every syllable of praise and glory bestowed upon him is earned and then some. Absolutely. But man, it's been a curse because it's like anytime you don't have an athlete, anytime you don't have a black public figure doing what Ali did, sacrificing what Ali did, somehow he, he gets bashed. Somehow he ain't doing enough. Somehow he's a disappointment for the community. Somehow he needs to be taken, tarred, and feathered uh, verbally for not being like Muhammad Ali. Man, not everybody can be Muhammad Ali. That's the reason why Muhammad Ali is Muhammad Ali. <laughs> because he is a once-in-a-generation, once-in-a-century type of human being. <laughs> That's what makes Muhammad Ali Muhammad Ali. Because no one else could. No one else can. <laughs> yeah, just like, you know, I mean, just like, you know, they have a guy on Fox Sports you know, who stars on the Shannon the Skip show, who keeps bashing LeBron James because, well, he's not Jordan, he's not Jordan, he's not Jordan. So, damn, man, so LeBron gets bashed because he's not as great as what many people consider the greatest basketball player who ever lived? How could you even say anybody else, how could you say anything positive about any other basketball player if LeBron James can't get the love and credit that he fully deserved because he's not as good as Michael Jordan? The same thing with Muhammad Ali in terms of his political activists because of his, what he did for our society, for what he did with the world through his activism, through his uh, political activism. That's Muhammad Ali. That's what made him so great because he was willing to sacrifice. That's what 
made them so awesome. And to sit up there and say, damn it, Jordan should be just like Ali, not only is that disrespectful to Michael Jordan and ridiculous, that's also disrespectful and ridiculous for Muhammad Ali. You're disrespecting Muhammad Ali's name just to, in, to think that anybody should be able to do the same type of things and to be on the, have the same type of impact, even close of having the same type of impact as Muhammad Ali. But that's the curse of Muhammad Ali. So if you don't sacrifice financially, if you don't, if you're not willing to go to jail and all of these other things, somehow, some way, you're letting the black community down. Somehow, some way, you're not, you know, holding up the standard. You know, somehow you're, 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 you're a sellout or something like that. I mean, here's here's audio of Jordan talking about, you know, not being like Muhammad Ali. I do commend Muhammad Ali for standing up for what he believed in. But I never thought of myself as an activist. I thought of myself as a basketball player. I wasn't a politician when I was playing my sport. You know, I was focused on my craft. Was that selfish? Probably. But that was my that was my energy. That's where my energy was. I gotta agree with him. Yeah, he thought of himself as a basketball player, not an activist. All right, all right. You know, he was more concerned about being the best basketball player in the world. All right. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Muhammad Ali, after he got his license back, and he lost to Joe Frazier in the fight of the century, he was much more concerned about becoming the heavyweight champion again than he was being a social activist. Now, he still, Ali still was. He still was. He still spoke out. That was his nature. That's who he was. But the Ali that we saw in the 60s, the Ali that we saw get his title stripped and get his ways of earning an income stripped, and the potential of him going to jail, that young Ali, the one who came into um, Miami, February 21st, 1964, and knocked out Sonny Liston or stopped Sonny Liston at the end of seven rounds and became the most hated and divisive athlete of our time when he announced that he was joining the Nation of Islam and changing his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali. That Muhammad Ali, that part of Muhammad Ali, disappeared after he came back and he beat Jerry Quarry and he beat Oscar Bonavita and he went to challenge Joe Frazier for the heavyweight championship in 1971, which was the fight of the century. Then he lost to Ken Norton, and then he had a couple of other fights, and then he beat George Foreman in the Rumble in the Jungle. Ali wasn't that same bomb thrower. Ali wasn't that same activist that he was in the 60s, that he was in the 70s. He still was, but damn, man, it's, it's okay for an athlete to immerse himself mostly in his craft, whether that being baseball, basketball, football, soccer, football, MMA, lacrosse, track and field, it's wrestling, it doesn't matter, man. It's okay. Could have Jordan been a little bit more active in terms of uh, social issues and stuff and such? Yeah, yeah. But is he somehow disappointing or Uncle Tommy or, or a sellout to the community or something like that? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I mean, I have to defend the guy. I'm going to have to defend the guy. Muhammad Ali had a whole plate of stuff that he could be a social activist on back in the 60s. Separate but unequal. Jim Crow laws. I mean, we're talking about the dog days, segregation. I mean, there was a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, you had the civil rights movement back then. Ali could immerse himself into. There were so many other issues going on. There were so many deep, deep issues that was going on that was preventing black folks, black communities, people of color, people of uh, different genders from reaching their potential, both financially and spiritually and as a human being. That, yeah, Ali had a lot on the bone 
to chew on because of Ali, because of Arthur Ashe, because of Joe Lewis, because of Jack Johnson, because of Oscar Robertson, because of Bill Russell, because of Tommy Smith, because of all of these great athletes. When the 90s, when the 90s rolled around, Jordan had the opportunity to not have to worry about that. See, Jordan could go down. Jordan could could go to North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi, deep state of Texas. He could go to them places, the north side of Florida. He could go to any of these jerk water places. He could go to some place in Jerkville, USA, and get himself a meal if he wanted to. Back when Ali was doing his thing, you couldn't. Michael Jordan could live in any type of neighborhood that he wants to. Back in the day, Muhammad Ali couldn't, or at least if he did, there would be some hell in terms of defacing his property, in terms of petitions from the neighborhoods not letting him want to move in there. Michael Jordan didn't have to face those things because Ali took on those issues for him. Now, if things were still the same, if if, if Jordan was going through those same things and those same issues in the 90s that he was in the 60s, well, then it would have been interesting to see what type of voice Michael Jordan could have could have uh, loaded in, in terms of the uh, in terms of some of the things that he was talking about? If Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player in the world and he didn't have the opportunity to live in a certain neighborhood, or he didn't have an opportunity to earn, to eat in separate restaurants or eat, eat in certain restaurants, or if he did go to a restaurant, he had to get his food from the back, or he couldn't sit in a restaurant, it would have been interesting to see Michael Jordan the way if he would have remained silent. If he was faced with those situations in his life. And same thing with Ali. You put Muhammad Ali, you put Cassius Clay in the 1990s. Does, is, is there a Muhammad Ali? Or is there a really great boxer, heavyweight champion known as Cassius Clay? Because the reason why Cassius Clay became Muhammad Ali, it was because of the friendship that he made with the great, the legendary, the all-worldly, my hero, Malcolm X. Malcolm X was the guy who taught Muhammad Ali the nation of Islam, the, the, the religion of Islam. Muhammad Ali learned in terms of how he to be a strong, intelligent, don't back down, fearless black man from Malcolm X. So Malcolm X groomed him. Malcolm X was like his big brother. Malcolm X introduced him to the nation of Islam. He introduced him to the religion. So this is a situation where, I mean, when they were talking about that fight between Sonny Liston and at the time Cassius Clay was a 7-1 underdog and 43 out of 46 sports writers thought that Liston was either going to win in round one or in round two by knocking his ass out. What gave Clay, at the time Clay, the strength, the belief, the cup, the confidence to know that he was going to win was because his big brother Malcolm X told him so. Because Malcolm told Cassius, Allah has preordained that you are going to win this fight and you are going to become the heavyweight champion. And at the time, Ali believed it. So he walked into that ring thinking to himself, I can't lose because Allah is with me. And that's what Malcolm X taught him. So when when Ali was Cassius Clay, an up-and-coming heavyweight, you know, on the north, in Miami, Florida, you know, this dungy, dungy boxing gym being trained by Angelo Dundee, I mean, he had some interest in the nation, a little bit of interest, but what started his journey to become Muhammad Ali and what started his journey to become the most recognizable face of the 20th century, the global icon that he was, it was 
it was um, it was the, the growth started with the great, the wonderful, the awesome, the legendary Malcolm X. So you know, if, if, if back in, fast forward to the nineties, there ain't gonna be no Malcolm X around for Cassius Clay. There ain't gonna be a situation where he's gonna be going into department stores and people are gonna be saying you can't come in here because you're black. Cassius Clay in the 1990s, when Michael Jordan was doing his thing, I'm quite sure as being the heavyweight champion of the world, I'm quite sure he could be making a boatload of money. If you talk about that smile, if you talk about how handsome he is, if you talk about how loquacious he is, when you talk about how uh, photogenic he is, when you talk about his personality, could you imagine the earning power? Oh, let's just, just forget Muhammad Ali. Could you imagine the earning power right now of a Cassius Marcellus Clay? The way that he performed, the way that he fought, the way his personality, his the Louisville lip. Could you imagine him being the heavyweight champion? How much money he could make? How much how many endorsement deals he could have? Does he become Muhammad Ali that we know of today? If we put him in the 90s? No. No. So again, Michael Jordan didn't have to go through the same trials and tribulations that Muhammad Ali did. Thanks to Muhammad Ali. So to sit there and this I don't know, man, to have Michael Jordan start wanting to be the next Muhammad Ali and talk about how disappointed our community is so disappointed in the guy doesn't make any sense to me. Didn't make, again, could he have done more? Yeah, he could have done more. But I don't think Michael Jordan was a guy who was like, I don't care about black people and fuck him and this, that, and the other. Again, I don't think he was Clarence Thomas. I don't think he's a, I don't think he's a modern day Candace Owens. I don't think that he's uh, any of those type of fools. So, you know, I think it's unfair to call any modern-day athlete. You know, sitting up there talking about, well, you know, he needs to be Muhammad Ali. I mean, you know, Kaepernick comes close. He's doing great things. I think Kaepernick comes close. But he ain't the Muhammad Ali. You know, he's not that situation. He's not in that situation. No one is. No one can be. Thank God. Thank goodness. Now, maybe if this piece of shit that we have in the White House now gets reelected for four more years, maybe we might need someone similar to Ali, because I think the struggle is going to be really real for black and brown folks if this fucking racist, misogynist piece of shit gets reelected by the ignorant folks of this country. But for the most part, nah, man, thanks to Ali, thanks to Jesse Owens and Jackie Robinson and Joe Lewis and Arthur Ashe and Jim Brown and Bill Russell, Althea Gibson, Wilma Rudolph, Charlie, Charlie Stifford, Major Taylor, those type of great athletes, because of them, I mean, you know, we don't have to worry about that type of stuff that Ali fought and, and scraped and, and bled for. So, you know, different type of protests, you know, speaking out, methods of fight, methods to fight injustice, different times, man, different times. You see LeBron doing his thing, right? You see LeBron out there doing his stuff, which is great. But as far as community is concerned, hey man, you know, it's, it's, it's allowed Jordan and Tiger Woods, Barry Bonds, Jerry, Derek Jeter, I mean, these guys didn't have to go ahead. I mean, Jordan wasn't the, wasn't the only one who was being silent, by the way, in terms of not being like Muhammad Ali. I mean, take a look at all the great athletes from the 90s when you're talking about Tyson, Mike Tyson, and Bo Jackson, and Ken Griffey Jr., and Barry Bonds, and Barry Sanders, and Deion Sanders, and Derek Jeter, and Tiger Woods, Jerry Rice. I mean, none, how many of those guys made, made uh, any type of political uh, noise during their time? Now, you can sit there and say, well, you know, they weren't as, as influential as Michael Jordan. Take a look back in the early 90s. You take a look at Mike Tyson, and you take a look at Bo Jackson. 
what those two guys were doing, or even the late eighties. I'll say them. I'll say because Tyson, for the most part, he was in jail in the nineties. But let's take a look at what was going on when Jordan first came into the league, first couple of years. So let's take a look at the mid to late eighties. Okay, Mike Tyson was bigger in terms of his visibility, in terms of his love, in terms of I mean, it, if, if he wasn't bigger than Michael Jordan in terms of being a public figure, he was right there with him. Same thing with Bo Jackson. Now, Bo Jackson injured his knee against the Bengals when he was with the Raiders, and he kind of dropped from that pedestal. But back in the day, it wasn't just like Michael Jordan and everybody else was, was, was a distant second, third, and fourth when he first came into the league, and he was building his Air Jordan empire. Mike Tyson was just as big or even bigger in terms of the public figure than uh, Michael Jordan. I didn't see him. I didn't see Mike Tyson out there throwing bombs. I didn't see Mike Tyson out there protesting. I didn't see Mike Tyson out there endorsing any candidates. I didn't see Mike Tyson doing any political activism. But was he a sellout? No, because Tyson had a tough upbringing, you know, growing up in New York and this, that, and the other, and poor Mike and this, that, and the other. Okay, but whatever. But he was still in a position, like, again, we're not asking, man, we weren't asking Michael uh, Mike Tyson or Michael Jordan to sacrifice their careers for a war or for the Gulf War or for whatever what was going on or for this candidate or for this presidential candidate or for this governor or for this mayor. We weren't asking them to do any of them things. Just do the bare bone minimum. You know? Tyson didn't do that. King Griffey Jr. didn't do that. Bo Jackson didn't do that. Derek Jeter didn't do that. Tiger Woods didn't do that. So, you know, I, I, I think it's unfair in a way to put all of that blame in terms of not being the next Muhammad Ali. Let's just, and I'm I'm speaking to, I'm speaking to my community right now. Let's do this. Let's put the idea of being the next Muhammad Ali away. Thanks to him. Thanks to Jack Johnson. Thanks to Jesse Owens. Thanks to Joe Lewis and all those who paved the way. We don't have to have the next Muhammad Ali because of those people that I just mentioned, on top of countless others, Malcolm, Mark, Martin, Edgar, others, Medgar, others and others and others. Because of that, we we don't need an Ali because we're not facing the same type of things that they did. We've moved on, we've progressed, we've matured, we've improved in that, uh, uh, that society. So let's not sit there and say, if someone is doing wrong or someone isn't speaking out, or someone isn't doing a LeBron, or someone isn't doing a Kaepernick in terms of their political activism. Let's not say, well, you know, he ain't, he ain't, uh, he ain't Muhammad Ali, so we're going to knock him down, or we're going to criticize him. Let's kind of move away from that, okay? I mean, whatever we can do, whatever he can do, let's judge him on that, and not just Muhammad Ali. Really, if you think about it, the only quote-unquote controversial, high-profile athlete of that time period when Jordan and those guys were doing their thing with Charles Barkley. And what was his main deal? I ain't a role model. You remember that, that commercial he made by Nike? I ain't a role model. Just because I can rebound a basketball doesn't mean that I can, uh, that I should be able to raise your kids. Yeah, that was, that was Charles Barkley. And that was the most controversial thing. Ooh, wow, wow. There's a couple of times he said that's the reason why I hate white people and this, that, the other, you know, whatever. But, um, yeah, I, I just thought that, you know, the criticism of Michael Jordan being a political activist was fair, but 
could have been tempered just a little bit. Could have been explained a little bit better. But, you know, the fact that they actually touched on it, I think they did well. Tell you this, man, as we uh, as we move on, speaking about this, you know, I mean, if we're ever going to move on, if we're, if we're ever going to come together as a society, as a world, and we're talking about ending racism, first of all, you'll never end racism. I don't care how, I don't, if I, I could live to be a, a million years old, this planet could be around for another million years, which is not the way we're treating it, but, you know, racism, poverty, crime, injustice, those things are always going to be there. Not just in the United States, but all over the world. In Bangladesh, in Vietnam, in the Philippines, in Canada, in Africa, Europe, Italy, Spain, Switzerland, Russia. There's always going to be some type of crime, always some type of element like that. But, you know, I would like to see more, more people kind of stand out. And I've always said this, you know, with, with Kaepernick, you know, I, I was always disappointed that Tom Brady didn't really say a little bit more about what was the deal, what was going down with Kaepernick. I mean, I'm not sitting up there saying that he has to kneel. I'm not saying that he has to start throwing bombs in terms of, oh, yeah, white folks need to get together. We all, you know, you know, putting down the man, you know, the man put them down. I'm not, I'm not saying Brady had to do all that. But, you know, just like Jordan, Brady was just so in tune and so focused on being the best football player, the best quarterback that he could be, he, quote-unquote, really didn't have the time to really think about, you know, what Kaepernick was doing and what Kaepernick was kneeling for. I would like to see Tom Brady, now that he's become a little bit more mature, maybe a little bit more comfortable in speaking on these issues, maybe, I don't know, address, give a comment. He doesn't even need to go full great Popovich or Steve Kerr. But, man, as far as, you know, white folks are concerned, because, you know, for this racist gap to improve and get better, we're, we're going to need the white folks. You know, we're going to need the white folks to start kind of understanding what their privilege is in terms of them being white in this country, being white in this world. And we kind of need to have them start to understand. And once you start to understand, you know, maybe we can grow together as a people, as a country, as a world, as human beings, as God's children, if you believe in that. So I always thought Tom Brady's silence I think if Tom Brady would speak, mention what was going down with Kaepernick and what's happening in terms of, you know what, we need to get a little bit more in terms of the, um, in terms of the harmonious situation, that we need to be speaking on police brutality, that we need to be speaking on the injustices and the crime and justice system, that we need to be speaking on fair and unequal, that we need to be speaking on these things. Not that I want Tom Brady to all of a sudden be an expert. But I would like to have Tom Brady go back to his community and Drew Brees and some other high-profile white athletes and say, yeah, man, look, you know what? This ain't bullshit what they're talking about, you know? I know Kaepernick. I know these folks. I know uh, uh, everybody. I, I, I know uh, Richard Seymour. I know uh, these guys, what they're talking about. And they ain't bullshit. This stuff is real. So I think we need to start listening to them. I know I am. Who's with me? I think more than I think more than any black athlete out there, more than Michael Jordan, I think the white athletes need to get together and start doing that kind of stuff. And if they do that, yeah, you know what? This world can come together a lot better, and we wouldn't have to be up there ripping and tearing to shreds and being disappointed because Michael Jordan back in 19, the 1980s, 1990s wasn't the next Muhammad Ali in terms of a political activist. <laughs>
Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. How are you doing? You doing all right? You hanging in there? You are hanging in there. Hang in there. Hang in there, man. A lot of things going on that I want to talk about today in the world of sports, mainly talking about Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan. How about this? So they started on episode six of the last uh, run of documentary. The Last Dance, excuse me. Last Dance. So the question was, would you like to be Michael Jordan back in 1984, 1988, 1984 to, 19, to 1998? What exactly does that entail? I think, I think what people don't realize is that from the moment Michael Jordan leaves his hotel room, the spotlight is on him. piece of him in some way or another he was under pressure to be on all the time with people michael can i get a picture with you and my son skipping nursing school huh? given his whole hectic schedule before a game he would sit down for five minutes ten minutes with a terminally ill child you got a birthday do you and he made the kids feel like they knew michael jordan Hotel room, spotlights on him, wanted a piece of him in some form of fashion, always having to play the image, you know, dealing with the sick kids and all that stuff. After the games, going to do the media, deal with the hanger-ons. After the game, at the hotel. Man, I guess you could say it's hard to be a normal person with that kind of lifestyle. Really, the only things, and we can always break it down because when people say, man, I would love to be MJ, man. Yeah, you would love to have his fame. You would love to have his fortune. That's mainly the things. I I would love to have, if you're talking about like being Michael Jordan from 84 to 98, I mean, the only things I would have liked about being Michael Jordan is the amount of money that he made, you know, the fact that he don't have to worry about his mortgage or anything like that. He's political proof in terms of whatever party. He ain't ever going to uh, need a dime. That's cool. But I would love to have the amount of money that he made. Uh, money equals power, of course. So the influence that I could have on those who don't have it. So for me, I would take the platform that I'd have and I would be a guy who would kind of speak at on, you know, social justices and justices that I thought needed to be corrected. And I wouldn't, I don't think I would bash anybody or, but you know what? I would go ahead and, you know, do what a lot of these athletes do in terms of, I'd like to go into some communities, 
rebuild some houses or, you know, do what Magic Johnson did, start some businesses in black communities and Hispanic communities, some downtrodden communities. You know, I'd like to try to help out those places, you know. So if I had Jordan's money and power and influence, I would definitely go in that direction. And also, I would love to have been Michael Jordan from 1984 to 1998 because the access of high-quality skanks that I could have slept with during that time, woo! Man, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, we're talking about Jordan having some grade A pieces of asses, man, where it was like at his beck and call. So if you're speaking about at the time, man, a 24-year-old Wendell Wallace having access to those type of things, woo, man. See, that's the reason why the Lord didn't make me famous and rich, because he knew how much I'd fuck up. When it came to, when it came, I'd be, I, I, that's the reason why you wouldn't, you never going to hear me Talk about, oh, man, I can't believe this guy had eight different kids by six different women. What a loser, this, that, and the other. You ain't never going to hear me say anything like that because let me tell you something, man. A, a, a 21, a 21 to oh, 27, 28-year-old Wendell Wallace, you give me that type of access, I'm fucking up a lot of times, man, when it comes to, I ain't stopping because the skanks and the whores aren't going to be stopping and they're going to be looking good and I'm going to have the money, I'm going to have the access, I'm going to have the hangers on, I'm going to have me the yes men and I'm going to have me the opportunity to bang, she bangs, she bangs, she bangs, man. So it's like, those are the those are the three things. Those are the three things. I remember, like I said, one of the things about MJ, or I see uh, um, uh, Magic Johnson, the original MJ. No, not Michael Jackson. But uh, Magic Johnson, man, was like, there were some stories coming out, like, when he, when he first found out that he had AIDS. I remember there were stories coming out, it was like, as soon as he announced that he had AIDS, it was like Arsenio Hall, Eddie Murphy, Mike Tyson, and those guys, they all got on the phone with Magic, and he was like, Irv, man, what do you, shit, what, do you know who might have gave you the maids, because... You know, we've been fucking the same groupies that you have. So it's like, do you have any idea just in case? Because shit, <laughs> it's like if you got it, I've been sleeping with the same girls y'all have, you have. So it's like, damn, I need to, uh, you need to pinpoint this or you need to, you know, patient zero or some shit like that. Because we need to find out if we got the, uh, we, we've got the HIV. So it's like one of them situations, man. I mean, I mean, you know, back in the day, Emma Sams, look up Emma Sams. Look up Emma Sams in the 1980s. Good God Almighty, that was a good-looking woman. You're talking about Ola Ray types. You're talking about all them type of females being thrown at me. The immature, insecure, impressionable Wendell Wallace between the ages of 21, 24, 27, 28. Not good. Would not have been good. <laughs> it would not have been good. So, hey, man, those are the only things that I would have liked about being Michael Jordan, having that type of celebrity or having that type of lifestyle, man. The amount of money I made, the money and the power that it created, and the opportunities gave me with women. So those are the thing, things. Dealing with the media, my my attitude. If it came, if I had that same type of uh, responsibility and and everything, like um, Michael Jordan had with the media, I would be closer to Barry Bonds than I would with Michael Jordan. Barry Bonds was the ultimate dick. <laughs> <laughs> Barry Bonds, great ball player, one of my favorite athletes, top five baseball player of all time, definitely not fan friendly, <laughs> definitely not media friendly, but it was, uh, yeah, I would have been closer to uh, 
Barry Bonds died with Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan had a lot more patience to deal with those guys than I would have. I'm not a very patient guy, so it's like, and if I had the stature that Michael Jordan had where I could curse somebody out and they just sit there and take it or nothing's going to happen to me, or I could, pe- I could treat people like assholes and they would be excused, yeah, the 21 to 28-year-old Wendell Wallace, yeah, I would have uh, I would have been closer to Barry Bonds than I would Michael Jordan. You know, I ba- basically what I would have done was I would have had a lot of um, bodyguards. When I left the building or whatever, I would have had a lot of bodyguards around me, and it would have been like, look, you know, some motherfucker comes up, you know, hey, hey, Wendell, sign an autograph. Hey, Wendell, can you take a picture? Hey, Wendell, here's my kid. Can you talk to him? I'm, you're the bad guys. You're going to be the ones that are going to tell them to get the fuck away. You're going to be the ones that are, basically, you are, you're going to be the assholes to protect my image. Because I ain't dealing with no fucking sick kids. I ain't dealing with Make-A-Wish Foundation. I'm not dealing with, you know, this guy's last request in life is to see me. I'm not giving anybody free shoes. I'm not giving anybody any tickets. I'm not going to be doing interviews that's not going to be helping me. So, no, you guys are going to be the bad guys. You are, you are going to be the one to, to tell Make-A-Wish Foundation to go fuck themselves. You're going to be the one to tell the local charities to take a hike when they go asking me for donations. You are going to be the guys. Now, I can be selective in terms of what I want to do. I'm not saying that I won't visit some children's hospitals. I won't say that I won't read some cards or if someone brings something to me about, hey, you know, this kid in this community is, you know, feeling down and this, that, and the other, and I think that you might be able to help them out and give them some cheer and this, that, and the other. I'm not saying that I won't do that type of things. But no, nah, man, my time is valuable. You know, I'm too busy making money. I'm too busy, you know, being selfish with myself, and I'm too busy having sex with beautiful women. I, I don't have time to be going to every sick kid who wants to uh, say hello to Wendell Wallace. I don't have time to be, you know, donating all of my money to this charity or to that charity or to that fund foundation or anything like that. I have to be very selective. You know, I have to be very selective. So I would be much closer to Barry Bonds than I would Michael Jordan in terms of, you know, cantankerous. If you ask me a wrong question or if you ask me a question I don't like, I'm going to go after you. I'll probably go after you personally. You know, I you know, women watch out in the uh, in that if if you ask me a stupid question, women watch out. I'm gonna go I'm gonna go pretty hard at you. You know, so <clears throat> in that situation, yeah, I mean, you know, but then again, I probably wouldn't be making an amount of money because there'll probably be advertisers to be like, ah, you know what? <laughs> he did what to a kid? He said what to a kid who asked for his autograph? Okay, jeez, I ain't I ain't give, I'm not doing autographs. I'm not doing autographs. I might take a picture with you if I'm, if I'm in a good mood, but no autographs. No autographs. Get them away from me. I'm not really in the mood right now. The game is over. It's my time. Get these fucking people away from me. All right? You know, so after, you know, talking about being like Mike, I would not want to be like Mike in that situation. And I'd also be scared, man. I mean, when you give someone that type of power, that type, that type of privilege, that type of, you know, the stuff that Jordan would, the things that Jordan have. When you're dealing with athletes and celebrities of that stature, man, whether it's Floyd Mayweather or Michael Jackson or Tiger Woods or Prince or Michael Jordan, I mean, how can you not live a dysfunctional, unrealistic life? I mean, how can your life not be dysfunctional if you really think about it? It's, it's like I, I, these guys, I've always said it before, Floyd Mayweather lives his life like he's a Colombian drug lord. I mean, when you have all that money and you have all that influence and you have no one telling you no and you can literally spend as much money as you want to, you can buy anything you want to, including human beings, 
how can you not be a dysfunctional person? How can you not be, you know, like unrealistic in any in everything like that? As I mentioned before, man, how would it, how would you like how would you like it if you were a complete and utter asshole to people, but people still like fawned over you and thought that you were great? Who made excuses for the fact that you're an asshole? How great would that be? I can act any way that I want to, and people are still going to love me. I mean, we're seeing it right now with the piece of shit that we have in the White House right now. This motherfucker can go up to one of his supporters, go up to one of his kids, the supporter's kids, pull out a gun and shoot the kid between the eyes. And the father and mother would probably still be sitting up there going, hey, you know, a Democrat would only want to shot him two times. I mean, when you have that, and of course, I'm just being facetious. But it's like when you have the type of power to basically where you can do anything that you want to do, again, it's pretty hard to become a regular person. So, I mean, some of the foibles and some of the things that we see in Jordan that, you know, it's like the way he acts, the way, you know, it's like, it's like you really can't blame him. I mean, it's like he's preordained almost. The minute that he became Michael Jordan, it was no longer Mike Jordan from Wilmington, Del uh, North Carolina, in Delaware. It was over. It was absolutely over for him. So, yeah, man, the, uh, I, I, it's not my deal. That's not my deal. I like my privacy. You know, I like. I love the fact that I live on a street now where no one knows who I am. No one talks to me. I'm not saying that we aren't friendly. But, you know, hello, hi, how you doing? And that's about it. No one's getting in my business. No one's asking me questions. I'm not asking them questions. They don't know anything about me. I don't know anything about them. Perfect. Awesome. Wonderful. Fantastic. Who knows, man? My next door neighbor could be burying human beings in their crawl space for all I know. I don't know. I have no idea. You know, I have no idea what's going on in these people's lives. I don't know their names. I don't know their backgrounds. I don't know nothing about them. And that's, that's fine by me. And when we speak, I'm cordial, I smile, I have good disposition, great disposition. But I don't want, no, 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 y'all don't need to know anything about me. I don't, uh, if you mind my, if I don't mind your business, you don't have to mind mine. So I, that's the great thing for me. So, yeah, I don't know about being Michael Jordan would have been a, would have been a great deal. So if I had Jordan's money and power, you know, leave me with my skanks, leave me with my friends. Leave me in my big flipping house and just leave me alone. Leave me the fuck alone. So, so there you go. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So in episode six of the documentary, they talked about the Sam Smith book, you know, the Jordan rules way. They discussed Jordan wasn't, wasn't real liked by his players, by his teammates, punching Will Purdue in a practice session, uh, threatening not to pass the ball if they pass it to someone else other than him, trying to get Jerry Cross fired. It's like, oh my goodness, Jordan the Tyrant. Oh my goodness, this that great. Hey man, name me a great athlete who wasn't challenging, challenging at times to play with. I mean, what? Wilt, Kareem, Oscar Robertson, Magic Bird, Rick Barry, Tom Brady, Dan Marino, Joe DiMaggio, Steve Carlton, Tom Brady again, Willie Mays. I mean, come on, man. I mean, name me a name me a superstar for the most part who was a winner and a leader and all that kind of stuff. Who wasn't at times could be a cantankerous, who could be a horse's ass. I remember Bill Sharman. When uh, Will was with the Lakers, you know, Bill Sharman was the first guy to have uh, morning practice, right? Before a game, shoot arounds, morning shoot arounds. So he sent the ball boy or somebody up to Wilt's room to say that, hey, Wilt, you know, we got uh, practice at 9 a.m., you know, we got a shoot around at 9 a.m. So they went to Wilt's door, and the kid was like, hey, man, Wilt, uh, we have shoot around at 9 a.m. Wilt said, 
you go back and you tell the coach, I'm only going to the arena once. When does he want me? Does he want me for shoot around or does he want me for the game? Because I ain't going back there twice. I'm only going to be going to the arena once. So if I go to the arena for shoot around, I ain't going back for the game. So which one are we going to deal with here? So, I mean, you know, I mean, Kareem, mood swings. I mean, you didn't know what you were going to be getting from him from day to day. I mean, he wasn't the most easiest guy to get along with. Oscar Robertson, I mean, he'd curse you out. He'd yell at you if you weren't doing the right thing on the basketball court. Magic Johnson, I mean, you've heard my memorable stories about Magic Johnson shit. There was a time where Pat Riley was talking about, uh, you know, we're going to have a two-hour practice. And Magic was like, no, 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 coach. We're only going to have a 60-minute practice. Pat Riley was like, no, no, we're going to have a two-hour practice. Now, Matthew was like, uh, no, coach, we're going to have an hour practice. Remember, we don't practice two hours after game days. You know, Riley kind of swallowed his pride and was like, well, oh, all right, all right, we're only going to do an hour practice. And as Riley was walking away, Matthew kind of turned to his teammates and was like, yeah, that's what I thought we were going to do. So it was like, well, like you know, I mean, you know, you're talking about, you know, throwing your weight around and doing those type of things. I told you about the Mike Schmerich. Um, a, a story with Magic Johnson where Mike Schmerich just, you know, was just acquired, wanted to show that he was a good teammate, got on the bus to go to the game. There were two buses, one for the players, the other one for the media and stuff. So he got right in the back real early, this, that, and the other. All the other Lakers started filing in Worthy, Coop, Kareem, uh, you know, Rambus and all those guys got on the bus. Magic was the last one to get on the bus. He saw Schmerich on the bus. He walked down to the end of the bus. He said, get off the bus. Smerrick kind of looked around like, is he serious? Magic was like, get off the bus. You're not a Laker. Get off the bus. Damn. Kind of kind of slinked off the bus, embarrassing him like that in front of the in front of his teammates and everything like this. Doesn't know Mike Schmerrick. Magic Johnson doesn't know Mike Schmerrick. That's his first introduction, telling him to get off the bus because he's not a Laker. A few months later, they win a championship. They're in the uh, locker room celebrating. Mike Schmerrick feels his hand you know, feel his hand on his shoulder, swings him around, hugs him as Magic Johnson and says, yeah, now you're a Laker. I mean, shit like that. I mean, you know, so you're talking about, you know, okay, name me a great athlete. I mean, I'm quite sure there's some, but maybe the majority of great athletes who have played are assholes sometimes who could be tough on players, who could be tough on their teammates. You don't think Tom Brady is tough on his receivers? You don't think Dan Marino was tough on his receivers? You don't think Willie Mays treated people like shit? You don't think Joe DiMaggio treated his teammates like shit? I mean, come on, man. That's, that's just the way it is. So I, I, you know, that that little thing about Sam Smith, about you know, like, oh my goodness, Jordan is a tough teammate. Well, you know, when you win championships, that's what happens. Now, was Jordan more of a bully than even than even any of these guys? Maybe, probably, probably, possibly. But you know, I I thought that was a little bit a little bit silly about oh my goodness, Jordan's a terrible teammate because he's rough and tough on him. I get out of here. Also, it discussed the um, 1973, 1993 playoffs against the New York Knicks. They discussed it, and I'm discussing it here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. Wendell Wallace, your host of the podcast. Man, that 1993 New York Knicks team and the rivalry that they had a couple of years with the Bulls and Jordan. Ooh! Woo! That used to get me some type of heated. 1993, that was the best team that Patrick Ewing played on in New York. That offseason, the Knicks got Doc Rivers, Charles Smith, Bo Kimball from the Lakers, got Roe Blackman from the Dallas Mavericks. They already had John Starks, Charles Oakley, Greg Anthony, Anthony Mason. Oh, man, that was a team, man. Pat Riley with the head coach. 
Jeff and Stan Van Gundy were the assistants. That was supposed to be the next year. It was like, okay, this is the year that we're going to beat Michael Jordan. We've got the pieces. We have got everything in place. They won 60 games that season, three games ahead of Chicago. So it was like, so when we meet them in the Eastern Conference Finals, we'll have home court advantage. Hallelujah. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Fantastic. They met in the Eastern Conference Finals. The Knicks won the first two games. John Stark somewhat dunking over Michael Jordan in the second game. It was awesome. It was fantastic. That was also the series that Jordan stopped talking to the media after Atlantic City Gate, if you remember that. If you don't, here we go. In sports, the Chicago Bulls are down two games to none in their playoff series with the New York Knicks. Some are suggesting that superstar Michael Jordan may have dropped the ball. In the last quarter against the New York Knicks Tuesday night, Michael Jordan looked tired. Was he worn down by the Knicks defense in a grueling physical game? Or was he worn down by a visit to this Atlantic City hotel on the eve of the game? The New York Times said today, Jordan was seen in the hotel's casino as late as 2.30 in the morning. Yeah, so from the audio I heard, yeah, you know, he looked tired. It wasn't the next defense because he was out until 2 in the morning, the New York Times reported. Again, that's where, you know, Wendell Wallace being in the Michael Jordan shoes, that's where I would have been like, yeah, hold on, hold on. Yeah, I'm not I'm not banning from talking to the media. I am going to talk to the media. First of all, to the New York Times, fuck you. Who the fuck do you think you are? Don't be fucking worrying about where I'm at, who I'm dealing with, who I'm working with. That's none of your fucking business, okay? What I do in my off time is none of your goddamn business. Period. Don't you ever print some fucking shit like that again. You guys don't fucking, don't, don't be talking about that bullshit. You know? Don't even go there. Well, was it two in the morning? Why the fuck do you care? Are you my mother? Are you my father? Do you want me to start reporting on what the, what the fuck you do in the, what the fuck you do? No. Well, then get the fuck away from me. Shut the fuck up. Get the fuck away from me. For the New York Times, let me unzip my pants, get down on your knees, and suck it. That would have been me. <laughs> you know, on a report like that. To Mike Francesa, to Dick Shep, all you guys can go fuck yourselves. Period. Man, don't be don't 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 be fucking commenting on what I do off the court. Now, if I have a bad game, say I have a bad game. If I'm overrated as the basketball player, say I'm overrated as the basketball player. If you think I'm putting the team down, if you think that I'm a bad teammate, say all those things. When it comes to my basketball playing, have at it, man. It's all yours. If you want to talk about basketball and everything like that, fine, cool, no problem. But when you start going off and start going into my personal life, or you start asking me about, you know, talking about where I was in between games one and two, that's none of your fucking business. Were you in Atlantic City until 2 a.m.? I wouldn't. I could be in Atlantic City until fucking tip-off time. It's none of your goddamn business. And Jordan came back in game three and four and showed them that even if you were out until the uh, 2 a.m. in the morning, he still would dominate and still be in the man. Now, it was reported, one of the reasons, it had nothing really to do with, you know, him, Atlantic City gate. It really had, the real reason why people, were, reporters were really caring about that because they wanted to be the first ones to basically break the news that, Jordan had a gambling addiction. Basically, that's what it was. You know, when, so when the news broke that Jordan was broke because of gambling or he admitted that he was a gambleholic or whatever, that they all had the information. They, they were going to be first with the information to put the puzzle, the pieces of the puzzle together to say, ah, see, told you. I told you. Remember when I was writing about him having, having a gambling problem? Well, here's the evidence right here. Binga, banga, boonga, bonga, bing. So that's one of the real reasons. David Aldridge talking about, um, you know, he was out there hanging out with 
playing golf with uh, James Slim Boulder, convicted for money laundering in 1992, but was acquitted of more serious drug conspiracy charges by a federal jury. And Jordan gave him a $57,000 check because of uh, lost gambling debts and playing golf. Jordan said that he had known Bowler for four years and golfed with him eight to ten times during that period. The two wagered from $20 to $1,000 a hole on golf. And there was a situation where Richard Aquinas came out with a book talking about Jordan owed him $1.25 million or some nonsense like that. So it's like, well, I mean, if you're losing that type of money, obviously you have a gambling problem, right? If you're losing millions of dollars gambling or if you owe somebody $57,000, a guy who's a, guy who's a um, uh, you know, a, a, a criminal, well, then, oh my goodness gracious, you've got to have a drug problem or you've got to have a gambling problem, right? Well, of course, people are forgetting that, yeah, yeah, Jordan owed him $57,000 losing money in gambling. Yeah, to me, you and me, that's a huge amount of money. Losing $1.52 million in golfing bets, yeah, that's a huge amount of money. That's an obscene amount of money to be losing. Except in 1992, when all of this was going on, 1992, 1992 alone, Michael Jordan made $36 million. <laughs> so, so, but now, now, now that's before taxes. <laughs> but still, if you're making that type of bread, Losing $57,000, eh, you know, it's like, it's like, no big deal. Like, can we all put this in type of, some type of perspective? I mean, the money that I'm making right now during this pandemic, none, as I'm waiting for my unemployment to kick in, I don't know when the fuck that, that's going to happen. I mean, if you lose $10 on the gambling debt right now, I'm losing my mind. It's like, I don't got $10, $20, $50 right now to lose gambling. That's why moving out here to Vegas, I've never gambled, never I've never placed a bet. I don't know how to place a bet. I don't know what. I don't know. I don't want to know how to place a bet. And the casinos right now that are currently closed, but those huge casinos down there on the strip, they don't need my money to operate. They've got enough money that for them to be a okay. I mean, the wind in all them places, all them the Aria and the Cosmopolitan, all them casinos and hotels and everything that's been built since I've been here, not one dime, not one penny of that has been contributed by me through gambling, through penny slots, through blackjack, through any of that stuff. Nah, man, I'm, I'm cool. When I moved up here from Phoenix, you know, Vegas as a vacation destination, the strip and all that kind of stuff, that was done. That was done. So I'm not living in Vegas. I have no desire whatsoever to be gambling. The point is, is that we put all this in the context. When you're making $36 million, what is $57,000 on a gambling debt? When you're making $36 million a year, what's the big deal on losing $1.25 million? You know, last time I checked, now if Jordan was participating in some money laundering activity, you know, or some drug conspiracy things with Flynn Bowler, then now, now all of a sudden, now, now we've got ourselves a story. Now we, the last time I checked, I don't think Slim was up there, you know, making deals about breaking the law with Michael Jordan. Uh, so it's like, look, look man, I don't, I don't give a damn who you, who you're out there golfing with. As long as you ain't breaking the law. Last time I checked, you know, playing golf with someone who broke the law is not against the law. So, you know, I, 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 I didn't understand that one. Maybe the fascination with Michael Jordan or whatever, but that was, that was, that was funny. That was great. So we get to uh, game five. Of the 1993 Eastern Conference Finals, Knicks in the um, 
Next is the Chicago Bulls. I'm over at my brother's house, Mikel Davis. We're watching. He's a Jordan fan. I'm a Ewing fan. I'm a Nick fan. Going crazy. Going nuts. I think we've got the game. I think we're going to go up 3-2. We'll probably lose game six at Chicago Stadium, but we've got game seven. So as long as we win game five, we'll have two chances to win. Vanquish Michael Jordan. Save Magic Johnson's legacy. My favorite player at the time, Patrick Ewing from Georgetown University, will move on to get a shot to win an NBA championship. Hallelujah. Let's go. Let's go, Knicks. Mike Lee is there. The garden is rocking. It's fantastic. It's unbelievable. It's a great game. It's physical. It's intense. It goes right down to the wire. And then we have Charles fucking Smith. Ewing out to set a pick. Here Starks changed his mind. to say all I could say was silence as the anger raged through my veins and boiled <laughs> I was I was fucking pissed <laughs> because I knew it was like series is over we have no shot against the Chicago in game six Charles fucking Smith at that time I just you know I, God bless Charles Smith man I hope that he's doing well and it's, it's only a game so fuck it so I hope he's doing well. I hope he's being a you know, good citizen and all those good things. No hard feelings. But at the time, Charles, boy, was I pissed off at you. <laughs> I was not Charles, a Charles Smith fan after that. But, yeah, that was, uh, ugh, that, was, that was not good. That was not good. So that kind of broke my heart. Michael Jordan did a lot of heartbreaking, boy, I tell you. He broke my heart in 82. He broke my heart in 93. He broke my heart when he beat Magic Johnson as far as winning the most championships. Well, he broke my heart a lot of times. But, uh, hey, man, it was a good deal. It was a, it was a really good deal for, for uh, that Charles Smith. <sighs> Still haven't gotten over it. Yeah, I have. No, I haven't. Still burns. Yeah, it does. No, it doesn't. Fuck it. Let me go, 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 go here. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. NFL news very quickly. The death of Don Shula, the NFL's winningest coach who led the Miami Dolphins to the league's only undefeated season, died on Monday. He was 90. The Dolphins, Dolphins issued a statement talking about Don Shula died peacefully at his home. He won an NFL record 347 games, including playoff games. He coached the Dolphins to the league's only undefeated season in 1972, winning 14-7 against my Washington football skins in Super Bowl Seven over the Hill Gang. 
The Dolphins can repeat the champions next season. They beat Minnesota 24-7 at Tulane. I think it was Tulane Stadium. I think so. Their third straight uh, title game played Miami had played in. They lost to the uh, Dallas Cowboys and my man Roger Stahlbeck 24-7 the year before in 1971. Then beat Washington. Then beat Minnesota. The next season, I think they lost in the Sea of Hands game. Sea of Hands game against the Oakland Raiders and from there, that dynasty of Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, Mercury, Mercury Morgan, Bob Kutzenberg, Manny Fernandez, Paul Warfield, and those guys, Larry Little, went by the wayside. But, uh, yeah, you know what? Shula was the coach for all of uh, five Miami Super Bowl appearances. He went 2-3. and three. He lost to Washington, Dallas, and San Francisco, and he beat Washington and Minnesota. So he retired after the 95 seasons. He had been the head coach for 33 years, 26 with the Baltimore, I mean with the Miami Dolphins. I think it was cool, man. I think it was really good that that Coach Shula passed away knowing still that that 1972 team was still the only undefeated team throughout the entire season. The Patriots, New England Patriots, won more games during that season only because they, the regular season was more, but they lost to the Super Bowl, so they didn't finish the season undefeated. And I just think it was great for uh, Coach Shula. And I know it got annoying sometimes with them popping champagne and him and Larry Zonka and those guys after the uh, last undefeated team would lose. But you know what, man? Hey, it's, I think it's cool. I think it's awesome. Everything that Don Shula was as a man, from what everybody is talking about, people who knew him, and everything that Don Shula did for the game, I think it's great that uh, he passed on knowing that, A, he was still he's still the all-time winningest coach in NFL history. Bill Belichick in about three or four years might have something to say about that. But he died knowing that still, I'm still the all-time winningest coach in NFL history. And B, I'm still the only coach who coached a team to an undefeated, undefeated season. So I think in a way, that's cool, man. I mean, he, he lived life the right way, died peacefully at 90. Celebration. Celebrate good times, come on. So I think that's great for Coach Sula. Right there with Paul Brown, Bill Walsh, Vince Lombardi. Right up there, Bill Belichick. Greatest coaches, George Hallis, he's one of the pillars, man. He's one of the pillars of the uh, of the NFL. Played for Paul Brown, played for Paul, Paul Brown, and then went on and had a marvelous coaching career. Very quickly, Andy Dalton signed with the Dallas Cowboys. What did that mean for um, Dak Prescott? Who knows? We'll find out a little bit later. I've been going on way too long. I'm exhausted, man. I'm beat. Woo! Yeah, this is a long one. I just got wrapped up in the Chicago Bulls and Ashley Walters and some other shit that I was talking about. And next thing you know, I mean, come on, man. You know how it is when I get rolling. When I get rolling, 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 rolling. You know, the thoughts start flowing and you start bringing up activism and all this kind of good stuff. I mean, you know, that's my passion. That's what I talk about. That's my wheelhouse, baby. So there you go. So I want to thank you for listening to the program. I want to thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Be good to each other, man. Be strong for each other. Be there for each other. And you know what? I want you to do this. I want you to do this. I want you to call the person that you love. I want you to get in touch with the person that you once loved. I want you to reconnect with someone who meant a lot to you. And I want you to uh, say, you know what, man? Or you know what, lady? Or you know what, guy? Or gal? Or whoever? Thank you. Thank you for having a part in making me the person that I am. Even if you hate who you are, you know, thank that person for being there. You, you never know sometimes when someone is at their lowest 
if anybody loves them, anybody really cares about them, you know, because when you get into the negative, if something happened that's negative, or if something happens, a breakup or a relationship ending or something like that, you know, self-doubt or maybe your self-worth starts to, starts to become a question mark for you. It's always good to know that you've got one or two persons that will love you unconditionally, whether that's a spouse or a parent or a cousin or an aunt, an uncle, grandparent, whatever, man. So, you know, it's always good to take time out to say thank you. Thank you for that because living in a loveless life in terms of not caring about anybody, that's something I wouldn't want to do. And I'm glad that I have enough friends and family and those around me that even though I'm single, even though I'm not in a relationship, and even though I don't have kids and the way that I'm going, I can live to be 847 years old, but I can still be in the same predicament. I know and I'm happy and I'm content and I'm strong and I'm grounded and I'm thankful that I do have people that actually really do care about Wendell Wallace. And those people are listening to the podcast right now. Or else, or else you're better or don't talk to me ever again. <laughs> Love y'all. Music.